I feel a deep sense of responsibility. I am Indian American and I am an actor. To deny that would be foolish. I've experienced several ups and downs as a result of my ethnic background and how people perceive that. And I feel blessed at the same time. This is not a black and white issue. I am very grateful to work. It's not about being a complainant. It's about being a spokesman or a representative of a community that's underrepresented. That's what I'm here for. That's Utkar Shambutkar. And this is the Ritual Podcast. The Rich Roll Podcast. Hey, people. What's going on? How are you? I mean, really, how are you doing? I really hope that uh, that this finds you well, that you woke up today and began your day mindfully, optimistically, uh, with conscious intention, a sense of promise, a sense of possibility, as opposed to anxiety or perhaps fear. And look, it's uh, it's not easy. I get it. Uh, the world is uh, world's pretty crazy right now. There's a lot of chaos and confusion out there, and it can be daunting. It can be overwhelming. So, hey, if that's how you feel today, if you feel stressed, if you feel overwhelmed, maybe a little depressed, that's okay too, because self-acceptance is important. And uh, I feel you. I feel you. There's no need to feel ashamed of that in this culture. Uh, there's no need to feel bad if you don't have your hustle on 24-7. But here's the thing. If that is how you're feeling. It's important to not keep it bottled up, to find somebody to talk to, perhaps even seek some professional help if it becomes acute. If you need to, that's what I do. And that's a big reason behind why I do this podcast. In fact, everything that I do. And, and hopefully you can find some solace some comfort uh, in this program, in this podcast, in the wisdom imparted by my many guests on a weekly basis. And speaking of guests, today's partner in podcast crime is my good friend, Utkar Shambhutkar. He is an actor, a rapper, a musician, a performer. You may know him uh, from his appearances in Pitch Perfect, The Mindy Project, a TV show called White Famous, one of those barbershop movies. Uh, he seems to be everywhere. His profile is growing uh, on a daily basis. And he's just a fantastic guy uh, with a pretty amazing story I've been wanting him to share on this show for a long time. And uh, today is that day. We all get it. Sometimes the news can really wear you down. That's why Wildcard, a new podcast from NPR, feels like a solution. It's an interview show that gives a special deck of cards to a whole bunch of fascinating guests, all in the hopes of sorting out what makes life meaningful. It's part game show, part existential deep dive, all party game. Wildcard comes out every Thursday from NPR. Listen to it wherever you get your podcasts. We're brought to you today by On. I am a total gearhead. I love researching the latest technology for the sports I enjoy. And I've learned that people often overlook apparel. But what you wear isn't just clothes. It is, without a doubt, technology. Technology that can make or break a performance. And I can tell you, after spending two full days meeting with the apparel wizards at On Labs in Zurich, 
that On is innovating in this space like no other with next-gen premium fabrics and just this heightened level of sophistication and precision and testing and development and intentionality previously unheard of that puts them just miles beyond the competition. I've been rocking On's high-performance running apparel, including the long tees, the weather jackets, even the climate jacket, all super lightweight, tailor-fit, built to move, and just gorgeous to get you out and get it done in fleet foot comfort, no matter the weather. I'm super proud to be a brand partner with this impressive team. From increasing product sustainability to improved energy return and impact protection, truly Swiss innovation at its finest. To get you moving, On is offering an exclusive 10% discount. To redeem, head over to on.com slash richroll and use code richroll10 at checkout. We're brought to you today by Brain FM. You know that thing when you have a bunch of intense work that you just have to do, but the mind doesn't really wanna do it? You're telling it, come on, focus, but it keeps getting distracted or agitated by nonsense. And you go through this painful sort of mini war to rein it in, to settle it down and just concentrate on the thing. Wouldn't it be great if there was something that would ease or eliminate this process? I don't know, like something you put in your brain through your ears? That would be great. And the good news is that it does exist. It's called Brain.fm, which is this sonic platform that leverages science to create tunes specifically crafted to optimize brain performance for a specific task. Tunes that contain patterns that shift your brain state with something even more effective than binaural beats called neural entrainment so that you can more easily focus on that thing or lure you into the sleep that persistently eludes you. Personally, I notice it the most when I sit down to write. Typically, this experience floods me with anxiety and a near lethal dose of the big R resistance that Stephen Pressfield talks about. But now I pop on the headphones, I dial up brain.fm, click the focus feature, and the process becomes, I mean, look, writing is still hard, but now it really is so much easier to get into that state of flow and stay there. So if you're ready to unlock your focus and productivity, I've got a special offer just for you. I asked them to give my listeners 30 days free and you can get it at brain.fm slash richroll. I bet you'll love it just as much as I do. Okay, Utkarsh Ambudkar. Utkarsh Ambudkar. I love this guy. Uh, Not only is he super duper talented, he's just got a great enthusiasm for life. And I have so much respect for what he does and how he does it. And the success and the creative flow he is currently enjoying as this member of a talented crew of South Asian actors who are really making an indelible stamp on Hollywood at the moment, including uh, an amazing performance that Utkarsh puts in in a new movie called blind spotting that caused a huge stir at Sundance this past winter and will be coming out in select U.S. cities next week. It stars Hamilton's David Diggs. And what's really cool is that Ukarsh just left this past week for a six-month stint in New Zealand because 
he was cast in the big Disney live action production of Mulan, which I don't believe was quite public when we conducted this conversation several weeks ago. I'm always fascinated by people in the prime of their creative expression. And so this is a conversation about just that. Uh, it's a conversation about what it means to live and cultivate a creative life. Uh, and it's a story about overcoming Hollywood stereotypes. And it's also a story about battling and overcoming an addiction, an addiction that very nearly destroyed Utkarsh's young career before it even really got out of the gate, including this absolutely gripping and heartbreaking tale that Utkarsh tells about how he essentially cratered the opportunity of a lifetime, uh, a little tiny role as Aaron Burr in a small little play you might have heard of called Hamilton, created by his good friend, Lin-Manuel Miranda. And it's about how he put the pieces back together in the aftermath of that. It's an unbelievable story. I don't want to say too much about it, uh, but you're going to want to hear it. So let's let Utkarsh tell it. When I wake up, well, I know I'm going to be, I'm going to be the man. So you were on Good Morning America today. Yes, yeah, it was. What was going on? So, uh, this, so I was in this documentary called The Problem with Apu. Right. Which basically breaks down the problem of the character Apu on The, Simpsons. the Simpsons. Yeah, and how it's offensive and stereotypical and how for decades this guy, who's a friend of mine now, Hank Azaria, a white man, right. has been voicing an Indian character. Forever. He's been yeah. doing that for years. To how many the, episodes has Apu been in? I don't know. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Let's say at least 100, right? Right in some capacity. And uh, the character for me growing up in this country in 1988 when The Simpsons dropped, Apu was the only character of Indian descent that the American populace had, was exposed to, right? Right. So if you are, um, and rightfully so, people in India are ignorant to people in Iowa. So it's not like some, it's, it's two-way street. But like, if you are an, uh, an Indian American growing up in this country, and all your classmates, the only reference point they have for somebody that looks like you is Apu from The Simpsons, then all of a sudden you become a slushy boy, you become a 7-Eleven clerk, um, you become an offensive and inaccurate accent, mm -hmm. and that's who you are, and that's your identity. Mm -hmm. Now, I'd never watched The Simpsons, so when people started calling me slushy boy, I was like, I don't get the joke, you seem like an idiot. Like, what, what are you talking about? But, you know, then you're introduced to the show and you're like, oh, this guy's going to be the bane of my existence until people grow up enough to understand humanity as a whole. Right. As opposed to these stereotypical little boxes that we um, operate in when we're kids. And even at that time, I'm sure their parents and adults didn't know as much as they do now. So anyway. But this whole thing like blew up all of a sudden. Like, yes, there was an article being written or yeah. what, what happened? Like, why did so, the Apu thing suddenly become a controversy? A good friend of mine, this comedian, his name is Hari Kundabolu. He made a documentary called The Problem with Apu, which mm. aired on True TV in November. And we did a talk back in New York and Whoopi Goldberg was there, which was like, I got to sit next to Whoopi. And she hugged me. It was so cool and kissed me on the cheek. Oh, man. We were like in front of all these people. And I was like, hi, Whoopi. And she was like, hug and kiss me now. Let's give him a show. And I was uh -huh. like, okay, cool, 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 cool. It was so I think cool. I remember when you shared that on Instagram. Yeah. And I was like, what is going on? Like, was, why is he with Whoopi Goldberg right so now? So stoked, man. Uh -huh. She gave me real life advice. I mean, I'll get to that. But 
The documentary just breaks down the systematic racism, specifically within the South Asian country that's that's been done in American cinema, like Brown Face and Peter mm -hmm. Sellers, mm -hmm. that movie, and all of Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, just how we've been underrepresented and misrepresented for several years. And Apu, the character of Apu, being the entry point into that conversation. Right. Now, a lot of people take things at face value, so they're just like, you're just mad at Apu. And it's like, no, we're trying to make a larger point here. That was Hari's goal. So the last episode of The Simpsons addressed this Hari Kundabolu issue and Lisa and Marge are sitting and Lisa's like, you know, she addresses the camera and she goes, you know, sometimes things that used to be inoffensive are now offensive and there's just nothing we can do about it. And then it pans over to a picture of Apu with a quote that says, don't have a cow, man, which is what it is. And then The Simpsons basically goes, we'll get to it when we want to. So they had an opportunity to address the situation in a careful and thoughtful manner. And these a bunch of Harvard writers or whoever's writing over at The Simpsons. I think I played basketball with one of them. and He definitely didn't go to Harvard. Um, but they uh, they were pretty careless and they were crass. They sort of flippant about the whole thing. Flippant, yeah. And so they copped out, right? So it created this big hullabaloo. And the only reason The Simpsons is getting this cultural relevancy again, because as we know, uh, any consumer of pop culture knows they haven't been a part of it for several years. But this documentary is now shedding light on them. So they're getting publicity mm -hmm. because of us, basically. And they had an opportunity to kind of say something interesting. Yeah. Like, like South Park would have taken that opportunity and, and, and sort of created something very insightful out of it, I feel like. Yeah, ideally, I would think so as mm -hmm. well. I mean, they've consistently hit controversial topics out of the park, like, and they've done right. it really well and uh, honestly. And I think that's what's important. You know, they're also not sitting in a, an amusement park industry. Mm -hmm. Like The Simpsons is a billion dollar corporation. Like forget a creative expression. It is a corporation like Walmart or Target or whatever, um, Viacom. It's, it's like any of those. But so this episode came out and there was outcry, and I actually played a character on The Simpsons. I mm -hmm. played Apu's nephew on the show, and that episode, which aired a couple years ago in 2016, was meant to draw some attention towards the stereotypical nature of Apu's character, but they copped out in that episode as well, and my nephew goes, you're a stereotype, you're a Temple of Doom guy. And then Apu's like, well, you're a hipster, and essentially he wins the stereotype argument by calling my character a uh -huh, hipster. Uh -huh. He's like, you're just a young hipster. And everyone's like, yeah, <laughs> like the racist stereotypical trope is still allowed because hipsters suck. Right. And uh, because of that, they think that I've got some sort of expert opinion on the subject. <laughs> because you played Apu's yeah, nephew. Yeah. Well, and you're you're Indian, you're an Indian yeah. actor, right? You're part of this community. Um, and you were friends with the filmmaker who made the documentary, right. correct? So and when you go on Good Morning America, I mean, what are they asking you and what did you what did you say? I you didn't know, even it's know this a, happened. It was a 20 minute interview that ended up being one line yeah, that I used. It's always like that. And the line that uh that I you that I said was like, you know, uh it was a cop out. They were the the actual quote from the show is things that used to be inoffensive are now offensive. When mm -hmm. in point of fact, in 1988 or 89, whenever The Simpsons was created, when the Apu character was born, it was offensive then. Like, that's the part you don't realize, is that when you decided to create this character, you were already creating a problem. Well, it's almost... I mean, it's really more offensive, right? It's almost like an Aunt Jemima kind of thing, because there was no other 
<clears throat> counterpoint to it. There wasn't right. like a, a Kumail Nanjani or there no. weren't like a whole bunch of other people doing interesting things yeah. on screen at that time of Indian descent. Now, you know, there's there's more and more people. And exactly. It's great, super cool to see that. Um, but when it's the only example in media, then it and becomes this trope that yeah. I would imagine, you know, is painful for kids like yourself who have to grow up on the receiving end of, you know, jokes about it but also speaks to a larger issue about our myopic, you know, kind of blind spot about race in America. A hundred percent. And that's the thing when people are like, well, what are you going to do with the Apu character now? It's like, I don't give a shit. Like Apu was a cartoon in 1988. He had power then. The Simpsons has got a core fan base. They are no longer culturally relevant. You know who is culturally relevant? Aziz Ansari, who just won a Golden Globe. Kumail Nanjiani, who just got nominated for an Oscar. Mindy, who just did a movie mm -hmm. with Oprah. Like Riz Ahmed, who won an Emmy. Like the list goes on and on. Hari Kondabolu, who's got a Netflix special. Like, you know, I'm working every now and then as well. Like You're I'm working all the time. Yeah, I you mean, know? like- I mean, even in comparison to like a year ago, like your career is on this crazy trajectory all of a sudden. It's, um, it's sometimes, you know, my team or my friend, Nick Collins, who's also my agent, he just said, you know, sometimes things click and you can actually hear it click. And he was like, somewhere around like last October, like I just heard a click. Right. And from then it's been like a pretty- it's been a blessing. You know what it is. Like you work hard, you're under the radar, you're just sort of chipping away, dropping the- It's the, the 10 year overnight, you know, overnight success story. Yeah, but it's know? like every day. It's like Rich Roll, anybody who follows you on Instagram or knows what you do, every day it's those hand paddles. Right. <laughs> and then one day someone's uh -huh. like, whoa, hand paddles, that's a great idea. When like that, that's a new thing. Well, you know what's so funny about the hand paddle? Now like people mock me or they, they do it themselves and then they tag me in it and then I give them a grade on how well they, can, they execute <laughs> upon that. Dude, that is my, um, that is such a soothing sound to me. The crack <laughs> of two hand paddles. I didn't know what they were. You know, yeah, everyone's like, what are those things? What like, are you doing? Why, why do you need those things? You know? yeah. <laughs> I thought you were, uh, they were like foot things and you run in the water. Right. I thought it was like some Navy SEAL training that you'd learned in like Galapagos or whatever. I wish that would be a much better story. No, hand paddles but are good. Speaking of like, uh, you know, lack of familiarity. I mean, I've known you for a number of years, um, but I think, you know, for a while, like we have mutual friends and I was kind of around you and I knew like, oh, this guy's like, he's like an actor or something. Like, I don't really know yeah. what, what and you vice did. Versa. I knew like, oh, he was in barbershop or something like that. Yeah. Um, but then I was listening to a Radiolab podcast, oh, which is wow. like a geeky science yeah. podcast. And it was an episode about like this beetle. Mm -hmm. I can't even remember exactly, but it was like, we went down the rabbit mm -hmm. hole about a beetle. And then they kind of, the whole episode culminates with this like little rap that Lin-Manuel Miranda yeah. and yourself, and who's the other guy? It's like, just the two of us. Was it just the two of you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. We did it. And there's like, and, and, and like the hosts are like, yeah, it's gonna be Lin-Manuel Miranda and Utkarsh Ambudakar. Ambudkar, that's how you say it, right? Yeah, Ambudkar. close enough. Utkarsh and I was like, Ambudkar. wait, Utkarsh, like, is that the same dude? <laughs> like, I go, there can't be another dude named Utkarsh. And I was like, oh my God. And I heard you do this rap with Lin-Manuel Miranda. Yeah. I was like, wow, that dude's talented. Like, Thanks. that was super cool. That's a deep cut. That was a right. Valentine's Day episode of Radio Lab. It was a while ago. Yeah, and Lin and I just <clears throat> basically sent like, 
bootleg garage band um, vocals back and forth to each other for like 72 hours and uh-huh. we came up with that, which is great, you know. Did they just approach you like, can you do a rap song about a Beatle? Like, yeah, basically, <laughs> it's like, you know, 100%. It's Tom, like the weirdest thing. Tommy Kale, who's kind of like the glue between all these guys that I'll introduce you to, I'm sure, during uh-huh. the, the course of this conversation, um, came to us and it sort of started where, you, you know, Google Zeitgeist? Yeah. They've got uh-huh. this big yeah, yeah, yeah. sort of um, whatever summer camp it's, feel. It's like a TED conference for like super amazing people. Yeah, like Bill Clinton mm-hmm. speaks spoke there when we were there. So basically, our group, Freestyle Love Supreme, um, performed at Google Zeitgeist. And what the, year was that? That was two thousand and I wasn't. It's a while ago though. Yeah, it was. Okay. It was two thousand twelve or two thousand thirteen. Uh huh. And um, <clears throat> they at the Radio Lab guy whose name is escaping me right now. Uh, like Jad Abinrod or something like that? Mm, sure. They, yeah, okay. <laughs> he, um, he, uh, he, I guess, reached out and was like, we have this fun idea and we think Lynn and, uh, you know, whoever else would be great for it. And right. Tommy put it in my lap and I was able to execute. So we had a great time. And Freestyle Love Supreme is this collective of like super talented dudes. I mean, it's incredible what the men in this group have done of uh, essentially like improvisational rappers. So it is long form improv. Um, We have games that are songs, subject-based songs, and then we just freestyle rap for the Mm -hmm. entire show. It's about an hour long, and I've been in that group for 15 years, the member of that group. Oh, I'm a camera, so I can show you. We all have this tattoo. This is the Freestyle Love Supreme it's insignia. It's like a mic, yeah. That, that, and then and the that, INC and, is right. my moniker, Utkarsh, the incredible incendiary, incapacitated, incorrigible, <laughs> incredible predicate. And, and so essentially it's like improv rap, right? Like yeah. you're just completely coming up on the fly with- It's freestyle right? rap. So uh, the members of the group, just to, just to brag, right. literally no other reason, just to get my validation from the your hundreds of millions of listeners. I wish, go ahead. Shout out to Iceland. Um, it's uh, Christopher Jackson who played George Washington uh, in the Broadway musical Hamilton. Mm-hmm. David Diggs who won a Tony Award for Thomas Jefferson and Lafayette in the Broadway musical Hamilton. James Monroe Igohart, Tony Award winner for playing the genie in Aladdin and currently playing Jefferson and Lafayette in Hamilton. Anthony Veneziali who is runs the Speechless Improv um, uh, program and also the Freestyle Love Supreme School. He's uh, one of our de facto leaders. Um, Bill Sherman, who is an Oscar away from getting that EGOT. He is the music director for Sesame Street. Mm. Chris Shockwave Sullivan from the Electric Company, beatboxer, vocal performer, Arthur Lewis, incredible hermit, and also magical musical mind. Um, Lin-Manuel Miranda, who is just nobody, right? right? No, right. Nobody's ever heard of that. Yeah, guy. right. Lin, Lin, and then me. I think that's the whole crew. And we have a couple alternates, but I think that's the core crew right there. Uh-huh. And so you guys, do you guys all get together as a group from time to time or how does yeah. it, how does what it work? What happens is once a year, all the stars align. I'm in LA, Anthony's in San Francisco, Lynn is all over the world all the time, although he currently has shingles, which is amazing because mm-hmm. two weeks ago I got adult chicken pox and now we're both. I can't, I know, I couldn't believe you got chicken pox. We have shingles? That's yeah. bizarre. He and man. I are in constant synergy. It's strange, mm-hmm. but um. We get together maybe once a year now, and it's a sold out show within five minutes. It's always been a sold out show some 15 years ago when I was a 21 year old kid being introduced to the group and showing up at a 150 seat theater and being like, whoa, this is what a packed house feels like in New York. 
because I'm playing to like my girlfriend and my friend's girlfriend and nobody else. Right. And it was such a trip. And, and the thing about Freestyle Love Supreme is it's freestyle rap. And just to like speak about it quickly, I come from like a battle rap background. So when I met the guys, I was, you've seen the movie Eight Mile? Yeah, of course. I was doing Eight Mile Raps, which is essentially, can we curse on this podcast? Yeah, of course. Which is essentially dick swinging, right? It's an ego, it's an expression of all of the fantasies of one's ego um, and aggressive, masculine, um, hyper raw and and very much about, very narcissistic, right? Very much about me. Well, it's alpha, right? You're trying to take the other guy out. Yes. So it's like, yeah, I be spitting and ripping and this the Indian revving his engine. I'm better than anyone getting attention. Like dispensing these rhythms, uh, uh, suspending your disbelief. You smell like a queef. I mean, I would never say that, but like, <laughs> yeah. but like, um, you know, I'll bury you. I'll carry you. This is a, you know, it, it was mean, mean spirited. Mm-hmm. So I auditioned for the group and like, um, I don't, the reasoning was that Lynn needed a replacement because he was going to do In the Heights. This was years ago. Way before Hamilton. Oh, way before mm-hmm. Hamilton was ever an apple in anyone's eye, I suppose. Um, and so I joined the group and Lynn and I rapped together and I rapped with the guys and it was sort of instant, like, oh, okay, cool. Like, these people do what I do. I didn't I didn't know people like me existed and vice versa. And were you like a freshman at NYU then or how? I how? was graduating early from NYU. I was okay. 20 years old. So I was finishing school. I graduated a semester early. You did. A year like early. Like a good Indian boy. Yeah, right? Uh-huh. A year early technically, but I had to do a little experimental theater program uh, just to see if I, if I could get a little bit more juice out of the educational experience. Mm-hmm. Turns out, no. No. Well, let's take it back. I mean, I have a pretty good sense of, of you know, the, the sort of time and place in which you grew up because I'm from Maryland as well. Whereabouts? Uh, Bethesda. You went to BCC? Uh, I would have gone to Whitman. I went to a private high school. I went Sidwell to, I went Friends? To, no, I went to Landon. Oh. Yeah. I wish I'd gone to Sid. I went to Wooten. Cool place, but you went to Wooten. I had friends that went to Wooten. I swam with kids that went to Wooten. Um, I've been to Wooten. I know that high school. Yeah. And I, I know the kind of surrounding area there. So I have a mental picture of you right. know, where you grew up. Um, White Flint Mall, baby. And you, oh man, that was like my jam. Well, I would train every morning swimming at, you know, you know Georgetown Prep on mm-hmm. Rockville Pike. I know so Georgetown So my club, Prep. my club rented that pool there. So I would go, I would go there every morning and I had like 5 a.m. swim practice there. And White Flint Mall is like just down the street. Is it still there? Oh yeah, dude. When that Cheesecake oh, Factory God. opened up, it was like, <laughs> it was pandemonium. Right. And then it would be like, you go to Cheesecake Factory and like all the, the, um, the rollover, whoever couldn't get into Cheesecake Factory would be at P.F. Chang's all sad about eating uh-huh. their dumplings and satay. They'd be like, ugh, P.F. Chang's again. We missed out on Cheesecake Factory. That's crazy, man. Well, just to date myself, you know, I remember when White when White Flint Mall opened, like when it was built. Oh, wow. Because what year were you born? I'm 83. Yeah. So I was swimming at, I was training at Georgetown Prep when you were born. No way. Because I, well, I graduated high school in 85. Oh, really? So you were two when I went to college. Wow. Yeah, so that's the, that's the differential here. So that's why I was like, wow, it's still there. Like, cause I, I go way back. I thought you were so much younger than that. Yeah, yeah. I'm that's an old it. dude, dude. All right, so you're growing up out Rockville way pretty much. Yeah, right there. Um, 
and so do you are you like uh like <laughs> so when do you get into like the battle rap? Are you like break dancing? Like I just picture you being like I picture you in high school and correct me if this is wrong because this is total projection. You're you seem like the kind of kid who you're not going to be like wearing a letter jacket and being like the super varsity, you know, alpha athlete dude, but you're funny and you're the kind of kid who like knows how to make friends. So you were somebody who could like gravitate between all the cliques and like be friends with everybody. Yeah. It's yeah. not a projection. It's right. pretty close to reality. Yeah. I was uh, just gregarious. I was the type of, I was the dude who would like run down the halls singing songs uh -huh. and just like high-fiving everyone. And <clears throat> I, I took pride in that everyone knew who I was, right? It was one of those things where it's like validation by committee. Like, right. please, if I know everyone, then there's yeah. meaning in my life. And there was real joy in it. Like, I don't, you know, I was, um, I really wanted to play basketball. And then freshman year, I didn't make the team. I went to see um, the high school musical that year. And I was like, oh, I, I could definitely do this. Mm. Like, this is something I could do really well. Or at least I thought I could. And then the next year I started doing theater and I fell in love with the community and the people and the, the friendship. I had moved in the middle of eighth grade to Montgomery County from Howard County. Uh -huh. So everyone at that age, you're like 12 years old and you're like going into high school and you're all clicked up. So I was pretty lonely for the first year. But when I found that theater community, I was really, I really got that that I had something special to offer people, you know, and I did all the dance competitions and like, yeah, I definitely was a popper and locker and like- right. We won every year. Me and my buddy Camby Gathisha, we, we with a blend of comedy and skill. We weren't the best by any means. But, but your entry point wasn't like comedy per se. It was more like theater, song and song, dance, like that. It kind was of stuff. it was comedy for sure. It wasn't stand up, but mm -hmm. it was comedic acting. So what I would do, and I I can't believe my teachers let me do it. Like I can't believe the directors let me do it. Like we'd have this play, we'd have like a Shakespeare play. And then I would just improvise on stage. Every night I would just, I mean, I would stay within the boundaries mm -hmm. of that Shakespeare play, but other plays I did, I would just improvise. I would come up with whole bits on stage in front of the audience, in front of 900 to a thousand people. You just go off script on Shakespeare? Off script, dude. <laughs> I'm just <laughs> That's like the one thing, no improv. I'm bugging dude. out. Like, well, in between the lines, like I do the Shakespeare Iambic things. pentameter, bro. I would do like the <laughs> iambic pentameter. I would do the verse. And then in between, I would just do whatever the hell I wanted. Uh -huh. And the audience responded. And that drug of right. laughter, you know, the joy, I had this image in my head of a woman sitting in like the third or fourth row, miserable look on her face. And halfway through the first scene, she starts to smile and she starts to look happy. Like I'm a bad actor at this age. I still am a bad actor in the sense that like, as I'm acting, I'm totally looking at the audience. If I'm in a play, <laughs> like not in I'm, the like, moment. I'm like, hey, Do how are you guys like doing? <laughs> yeah. Do you guys like me? Do you like me? It's like, it's one of those things where you know, when I see actors who immerse themselves in a role, like a Daniel Day-Lewis, who's like, I am Abraham Lincoln. I don't think I could ever do that. Right. Cause I'm like, hey guys, am Are we I good? Abraham? Are we good? Is, <laughs> yeah. this, is this connecting? Is this working like, for you? Like, hey guys, am I Abraham Lincoln? As a total <laughs> like a side tangent, I saw on your IMDb, you did a short film called Real Housewives of Shakespeare. Oh yeah. <laughs> Just like made me laugh. That was with my- I, mean, I didn't see it, but uh, no, that's a, a hilarious title. Yeah, it was my friend, Jamie King, a very, very good friend of mine and writing partner wrote this whole thing for his thesis at Loyola Marymount 
um, grad school and made this whole show in verse. And it's the Real Housewives, but with all the oh, Shakespeare, oh my God. Shakespeare ladies. And I right. played Puck in that. And Puck was like a, you know, a, a, like a rapper or some mm -hmm. sort of like public figure. Um, yeah, it was one of those things where we like were in a hotel for like 15 hours. And I was like, Jamie, I That's love you. Funny. I love you, bro. And he knows this because I said it to him. I was like, I'm never doing this for right. you again. <laughs> I was like, we're not doing this again. Well, back to this validation thing. Sure. I mean, it's sort of a trope like, oh, performing arts, theater, you know, actor, singer, dancer, dude, like, you know, feeds off validation. Like, of course. But, you know, I see, you know, you share, you always share on Instagram, like when you go home and you visit your parents or when they visit you, like your parents seem super supportive. Yeah. Like, it's not like, oh, I didn't get it at home, so I had to get it somewhere else. I think that that is um, indicative of where we are now in our relationship, mm. my parents and I. Right. So they as had to, a, you, you put them through it to yeah, get you know, to this place. Yeah. I, I was not the most present um, or positive son. And <clears throat> they'll disagree because they'll be like, that means we weren't good parents. But they were. And they were supportive and they tried and they were loving. But they, we're also talking about two people who at the age of... 28, moved to a new country with very little money. They moved to Baltimore, Maryland, which is not the nicest city at the time in 1980 in the United States of America. And they worked on postdoctorate salaries, which was maybe 10 to 15,000 a year. For the first month, the processing system thought that they both were one person because they shared the last name. So they were working off of one check. Wow. And they move into a brand new country. They have a child who's boisterous, loud, energetic, uh, out of control, very happy. Um, and they have to raise this new human as an American in a country that they are just beginning to understand. Mm -hmm. So, so many of the experiences that I had at a as a child, they had no reference point for. So when I'm 12 or 13 and I'm like, yo, I got to have a girlfriend. Everybody has a girlfriend. Uh -huh. My mom and my dad are like, well, we're the only people we've ever known. You can't have a girlfriend. You got to have, what can we control? Studies. You have to have good grades. And anything that gets in the way of your progress academically, as far as we know, because of our experience, will impede your ability to live a fruitful life. Mm -hmm. Like all this social stuff you want to do, we don't know what the fuck that is. <laughs> yeah, like, like, I mean, that's, you're just like a Martian. Basically, you know, they know how to raise you to be an engineer. Yeah. Right. A PhD. Biochemist. They, so did they get their PhDs in India and then come yeah. here? They got their PhDs in India and that's where they met in grad school. Uh -huh. They got married. They were separated for two years. Not, I mean, because my dad had, my mom had to finish school and my dad had to work. And then they moved to the US and then the, I popped out mm -hmm. and it's like, I'm Did your not, mom work at NIH or something like she, that? They both right. work at the National mm -hmm. Institutes of Health. My dad was at Johns Hopkins. My mom is in the National Institute of Dental Research, and my dad is in the National Cancer mm. Institute. So he's working with antibiotic-resistant strains of cancer, um, chemotherapy-resistant strains, and trying to figure out how um, cancerous cells become resistant, right? And my mother, what happens is, this is like taking a deep dive. When cats get cats, when people get radiation treatment, their salivary glands die. And they're unable to produce saliva, which as we're talking now, like everyone can hear how wet my mouth is. If it was dry, like, and I had no ability to swallow, it'd be a problem. You right. get mouth infections. So she's trying to look at the uh, calcium channel of the parotid gland in the salivary gland 
to figure out how to turn it on and off, essentially. Uh-huh. Where, where is the protein, the minuscule microscopic protein that you can turn on and off? So to put that into the context of my life, take your kid to work day was like, uh, sit down at a table, get four pins, get a rat, mm-hmm. put the pins in the rat's hands, dissect the rat with the rest of her staff, with the rest right. of graduate students and like PhDs and just sit at a table at nine years old and cut out the parotid gland and then get a bucket of liquid nitrogen <laughs> and just <laughs> throw rubber gloves in and it. And you're like, where's hours. the microphone? Like, what, do you have any tap dancing shoes? Yeah, right? <laughs> and I'm just joking and I'm like, fun, right. fun, fun, happy, 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 people, uh-huh. people, people. I love people. And it just took a while for them to see where my skill set Mm-hmm. was and you know part of that was stubbornness like i fought and i clawed like a war of attrition yeah i was just like no i'm gonna be it i'm i'm just you know i'm, I'm doing theater this but is did what I'm you doing. have a clear picture like this is what my life is going to be like when you started doing theater in high school were you like that's it that's this is my this is gonna yeah, be my immediately life. right wow as soon as i got Clarity. on stage i was like i'm in water like mm-hmm. I, whatever it is for you like i am it, this is oxygen like mm-hmm. i am breathing right now. I've never been so comfortable in my life. And did you get, was there a good theater department at your high school to support you? Like, did you have a drama teacher that could see like, hey, this guy really wants this, or this guy has some talent that I can foster? Or were you just trying to figure it out yourself? No, I had, Carol Solomon was an English teacher and Harriet Middleberger was my um, drama teacher in high school. And um, this man, uh, I think his name was Herbert, but I definitely know his last name was Weisgerber. Henry, her, I don't know, Wise Gerber, and I had friends and I had people and my peers to sort of work with and compare myself to. And then there was this thing in DC called the Young Americans of Washington, which was like the Juilliard of Maryland. Uh And I went and did a show with them and was around these people that were really, really talented. A lot of, many of those people made it to Broadway and like are working today. And um, I was just like, okay, like, you know how it is, uh, like, even with swimming, you're like, okay, I can, I can hang, like, I can swim with these, with Mm -hmm. these guys, like, Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm okay here, like, Charles Barkley talks about, I'm a huge basketball fan, and Charles Barkley talks about, like, when you're in high school, you, like, play, and you play, and you're like, okay, like, I'm a pretty good high school player, like, I'm, like, at the top, like, I'm in the top 5%, and then you get to college, and you're like, back at the bottom mm-hmm. and you work and you sort of see how people play and you're like, okay, like I'm pretty good for the college level. And then you get to the pros and it's a much, the rules change. The rules in the pros are how do you look? How tall are you? What ethnicity are you? Um, what is our worldview of what someone like mm-hmm. you is capable of doing? How do you communicate with the fans and the press? Yeah. And, um, so the rules in the pros are a little bit different as far as acting is concerned. It's not merit-based. It's not as, it's very subjective. It's not as objectively like I jump higher, I score more points. It can be like, oh yeah, you're much funnier than him, but he's a white guy and we need a white guy to be the lead of the show. We can't put an Indian dude on a billboard. Are you crazy? We're brought to you today by Birch. If you're serious about optimizing your sleep, listen up. I've spent countless hours researching and testing various methods to improve my nightly shut-eye, and I can confidently say that it all starts with a good foundation. And if your bed is old, if it's uncomfortable, lumpy, then your sleep inevitably is going to be impacted. So 
it's important to invest in a quality mattress, one that's insanely comfortable, that's organic, sustainably made, and that, my friends, is a birch mattress. Fairtrade and Rainforest Alliance certified with the finest quality organic natural materials like organic Fairtrade cotton, birch mattresses are made with none of the toxic chemicals and off-gassing produced by most major brands. Kind of important not to be breathing that for a third of your life, I'd say. Plus, it's super luxurious. I've been sleeping on birch for about five years, and I'd say it's the perfect ratio of soft to supportive, and the craftsmanship is just next level. I've got one in every room of my house. I love it. Pretty sure you will too. And right now, Birch is giving 20% off all mattresses and two free EcoRest pillows at birchliving.com slash richroll. That's 20% off and two free EcoRest pillows. Sleep better with Birch. We're brought to you today by recovery.com. I've been in recovery for a long time. It's not hyperbolic to say that I owe everything good in my life to sobriety. And it all began with treatment and experience that I had that quite literally saved my life. And in the many years since, I've in turn helped many suffering addicts and their loved ones find treatment. And with that, I know all too well just how confusing and how overwhelming and how challenging it can be to find the right place and the right level of care, especially because unfortunately, not all treatment resources adhere to ethical practices. It's a real problem, a problem I'm now happy and proud to share has been solved by the people at recovery.com who created an online support portal designed to guide, to support, and empower you to find the ideal level of care tailored to your personal needs. They've partnered with the best global behavioral health providers to cover the full spectrum of behavioral health disorders, including substance use disorders, depression, anxiety, eating disorders, gambling addictions, and more. Navigating their site is simple, search by insurance coverage, location, treatment type, you name it. Plus, you can read reviews from former patients to help you decide. Whether you're a busy exec, a parent of a struggling teen, or battling addiction yourself, I feel you. I empathize with you, I really do. And they have treatment options for you. Life in recovery is wonderful, and recovery.com is your partner in starting that journey. When you or a loved one need help, go to recovery.com and take the first step towards recovery. To find the best treatment option for you or a loved one, again, go to recovery.com. Meditation has been a recurring theme on this podcast, dating back to its beginnings. And in conversation always leads people to asking me about the best way to begin. There are no shortage of modalities, of resources, and apps available. I have experience with many of them, but my mainstay, I have to say, the one that I have found most useful is waking up. It's this unique treasure trove of wisdom that has become so important to my daily routine that the app finds itself right in the dock of my phone for immediate fingertip access. Beyond its robust catalog of daily meditations, it's also this extraordinary library of mindfulness resources that go well beyond the strictures of meditation with courses on stoicism, cognitive behavioral therapy, time management, procrastination, as well as thoughtful conversations with leading scholars on everything from psychedelics to happiness. It really is one of the most worthy investments you can make in yourself. 
And listeners of the show can get 30 days to try Waking Up for free. Plus, you'll save $30 on the in-app price. If price is a concern, Waking Up offers the app for free, astonishingly for anyone who can't afford it. You can find the links on their website to get a full scholarship right now. Just go to wakingup.com slash richroll to start your free month today. That's wakingup.com slash richroll. But the point you're making is essentially that you felt comfortable here. You knew you could hang. And as you started to like kind of move up from high school to college, et cetera, like you were at home. You never felt like you were out of your depth. And, and that comes from my parents. Mm -hmm. And I will say this as um, not a negative, but that is an entitlement that they gave me. And it's a confidence and a belief and, a, and probably it's their love and support that allows me to walk into most rooms expecting to get a job. It's an insane, I know it's an insane, irrational confidence skill or gift or mental quirk or um, I don't know. It doesn't, it doesn't exist in any other well, form. Well, walk me through that. Life. Like, how did they instill that in you? And what does that look like and feel like? It just feels like I'm going to be okay. It's a real feeling of like, no matter what happens. You can do this. Yeah, mom and dad will be there. Mm -hmm. Like, I think it's from a very young age of like, if I mess up, mom and dad will be there. Now it's my responsibility now as an adult to not have that be a constant safety net, right? Or to let that let that turn you into being an asshole. Exactly. Which happens to a lot of people. Now my mom and my dad and I have a wonderful relationship and I think that they can rely on me and expect me to be a certain person every time they see me as opposed to some erratic, uh, loco, freaking firecracker of a human being. Well, I feel like you had to earn the success that you're experiencing now in a kind of an interesting way that we're gonna get into in a minute. Sure. Um, that probably grounds you and allows you to be a little more connected with humility than somebody who just hit the ground running. And well, cause of guys like you, for sure. Mm. It's like, I didn't know who you were. You're just like the soft-spoken dude with pretty good hair. It's great. Your hair is just no. incrementally I'm trying to, so I just much modeled better. my haircut after you. Dude. I know this is You don't is a think podcast. I should grow it back long again? I, I mean, you can, but this is no. so suave, <laughs> man, my friend. You should be in a tweed jacket at all times all with right. this haircut. I'll think I know it. this is an audio podcast, but um, your boy Rich Roll is looking good, ladies and gentlemen. All right, man. Back to you, dude. All right. Fine, fine, fine. So, so well, what was your childhood like? <laughs> Oh, I'll, I'm happy to come on your podcast when you decide that you're going to get back and do it again. Oh man. Okay. So what, what were you saying? But like, here's the thing. So, so you go to Tish, you go to NYU. Yes. Yeah. I mean, that's pretty fucking dope. Like to get into Tish. Yeah. Did you get right directly into the acting program? I did. Mm -hmm. And the road to that was. Did you apply to a whole bunch of drama oriented colleges? What happened was I was sitting in the back of the minivan and uh, told my parents after a show, I'd like to be an actor. This is what I'd like to pursue for my life. And my mother said, as to speak to what we started this podcast with, the only Indian on television is Apu on The Simpsons. Mm -hmm. And he's a fucking cartoon. What makes you think you as a human Indian can make, get anything done. That's some truth talk from Mom Karsh. Yeah, it's a Because it's like, look, she, you know, engineer, lawyer, doctor, you know, we're immigrants. We wanna make sure that our child is educated and upwardly mobile. Of course. He wants to be an actor. There's absolutely no Indians no. on screen at the time. No. I mean, it's a pretty logical right. conclusion. And my, I don't know, again, I don't know what it is, but there was no doubt in my mind that I'd be able to succeed. 
And I, I don't think that that's some, I don't know what that is and I don't champion it. I mean, that sounds like something that goes beyond just the way your parents parented you, like some deep conviction, like some past life shit. It's like a supreme stupidity. <laughs> it's mm-hmm. like just the, it's as dense as you can possibly be. It's single-minded. But not a hope like a knowing. Yeah, I've never had a hope. It's always been just there. Mm-hmm. And that's what's gonna happen. And, it and what was happen. the idea? Like what was, the, if you had to visualize what that looked like in terms of where you saw yourself? At that time, Will Smith, mm-hmm. like that was my hero. I was like, yeah, I'll do this Fresh Prince thing. Like I'll go, I'll be a rapper, I'll be a TV guy. Like I'll go do it. And now like, you know, there's a, it's a good life. And I mean, at that time, my parents, my mother had no clue what acting was like. And my parents were like, all right, cool, 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 cool. You want to do this acting thing? My father, now I know, was like, if he's passionate about something, you let him do it. Mm. That's what it is. At the time, he was like, you know, you're like, he couldn't tell, he couldn't be like, yeah, yeah, chase your dream. That's what I did. My father came from a small city, waking up at 6 a.m. and basically wrote his way out of a tiny city into the preeminent spot in his field. Right in the United States of America. Yeah, to be at NIH doing cancer research. I mean, that's that's the top of the heap. If you look up my last name on Google, it's my dad, my mom, and then me. Uh-huh. That's amazing. Yeah, that we is We also cool. might be the only people with our last names on the planet, <laughs> but <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Uh-huh. I don't know, but I mean- did, I, they ever, did they ever say, listen, okay, you wanna be an actor? Well, maybe you should go back to India and do the Bollywood thing. No, cause they knew my Hindi is horrible. Like uh-huh. I can't really dance. Right. I can't hang with no those dudes. You have no accent at all. Hell no, mm-hmm. I would I'd be tossed aside. I'd be right. cast aside like many Indian Americans who've tried to do the same thing. Uh-huh. Like they're like, uh, we're good. <laughs> but <laughs> like, you, all right, so you're at NYU. So, That's like the perfect place for you. Yeah, I mean, what happened was, is they made me apply just real quick. They made me apply to 15 schools or uh-huh. 16 schools, half academic and half acting. And I did all my auditions myself. I didn't have any help. And my mother was like, I don't know what to do. So she went to this director, Harriet Mill- Middleberger, who's actually the art teacher at school and was like, do you think my son can be a professional actor? And this poor woman, Harriet Middleberger, who is an art teacher at a high school in Gaithersburg, Maryland, or Rockville, Maryland, <laughs> uh-huh. has to decide my fate. And she- What she says will determine And Harriet Middleberger's like, yeah, this. he's got focus issues, but he's talented. If he puts his mind to anything, he'll be good at it, like the diplomatic answer. And that was enough for my mom to be like, okay. And then getting into a school at that time when it might still be as prestigious as NYU mm-hmm. was a big deal in yeah. building their confidence. Yeah, I would imagine that would allow them to like feel like sort of exhale a little bit. Like, okay, yeah. NYU, great school. For like, sure. Whatever happens with this acting thing. You went getting... to Stanford? I did, yeah. You did? Yeah. Cool. But then I went, after I finished Stanford, I went and lived in New York City and um, I dated a girl who uh, who was an NYU student in the acting program there, and I had I'm, you know I met a bunch of those people. Deborah Messing, like, no, De- not Deborah <laughs> Messing. Nobody you would know, but uh, uh, I got a I got like a sense of that program and kind of what goes on there. Mm-hmm. It's so impressive. Yeah, it was it was fun, man. I don't know how you are in an academic environment, but as a creative person and when you're trying to express something that is so intrinsically a part of who you are especially when what you do is so tied into the rhythm of humor and comedy and Mm -hmm. it's not about diving into the mind of a character it's about finding the music in the moment 
and finding and mining the laughter. And that's an instinctual thing. You can learn it to some degree, but the language of laughter is so, you can see I'm like contorting my body. It's so in the back of my neck and in the base of my spine and in my stomach and it's in my, like my, my earlobes. It's like I can, it's an energy. And so when you go to school and you have, that's the language that I spoke at the time, and people are like, you should be playing princes and you should be this. And don't be a funny man. Be a serious man. Do you want people to take you seriously? Don't you? This is acting. And I'm like, no, I want that experience that I had when that woman came in with a frowny face and then left beaming. I do it for them. Mm -hmm. I don't want to do it for critical peers. I don't want to do it for anyone who has an understanding of how the magic works. I'm not doing magic for other magicians. I'm doing it for the people that want to be transported somewhere. So that was like a very hard thing for me to do. Now, the vocal training at NYU, the physical training, the spine work, the Alexander technique, the, the core work, the breath work, invaluable for like doing a six show week um, in a stage play. And how much of it do you think is trainable? Like you, there's this kind of ongoing conversation about like, oh, well, did you study Meisner or did you, what was the, you know, what school of thought did you, you know, what, did, under which did you train? And I'm always curious, like how much of this is just like, you just came out of the womb, like channeling this, like to use your phrase, like magic, like there's a magic to it. There's an energy to it that you're just attuned to in a certain way. And yeah, you can learn certain techniques to hone your craft and what you do and improve and, and sort of figure out different ways to approach these characters. But how much of that is like nature versus nurture? I think it's, I mean, I'm of the school that it's, you're born with, you're born with it. And some people are born with more and some people are born with less. We can call it charm. We can call it charisma. We can call it gravitas, you know, weight, depending on, there's so many different kinds of performance and they all require a different set of skills. Um, and how you, like for me, like I know that my skill and my gift is in making people feel good and laugh. That's what I do, I entertain. I'm a performer in that regard. I don't know that I'd consider myself an actor, but like if someone wants to call me that, cool, I'll take the, I'll take the title. But like mm, how I use my body physically, like, probably very similar, like focusing which area of my spine do I use for this character? Like there are really fun ways to play with your body that I didn't know before I showed up. Like I was a jumping bean on stage, I couldn't sit still. And then I had a teacher be like, hey man, plant your feet, take the space. You have so much energy, use it, focus it. That was helpful, right? Cause I was embarrassed. I was like, here I am thinking I'm hot shit. And like my teacher goes up on stage and copies the way I look and I look ridiculous. Like I'm like flopping around. Well, it's like Yoda and Luke Skywalker. Like, okay, yeah. you, got, you have the force, the force is strong with you, but like if the force is just, you know, oozing out of your pores and like, you know, yeah. it's not focused, it's not channeled in a very intentional way. Yeah, and it's also that thing of like self-centeredness and narcissism can really deter you as an artist, right? Cause once you get, so like when I was battling, right? Another like major moment is like, I'm like swinging my dick left and right. Ba 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 ba, India dick on your forehead. <laughs> and like Tommy Kale comes up to me and is like, hey man, I get that you come from an ego environment. I get that everything you do is to boost your own ego. We are operating as Freestyle Love Supreme 
in a world in which you rapping about yourself is infinitely less important than you and interesting than say you rapping about oatmeal. If you can rap about oatmeal or the Incredible Hulk or the Los Angeles Clippers with as much dexterity and passion as you rap about yourself, then I'll be interested. Mm -hmm. And when you can do that, when you can take the focus off of you, then you'll then you might you might have something. And that's that, powerful life advice, dude. Changed my whole game. It opened me up to a world of expression and improvisation that I up until that point had not experienced, and it took so much pressure off of me that I didn't know was there. Mm -hmm. Because ultimately, like, I don't feel that great about myself. Who can feel that good about themselves all the time? I'm like a skinny Indian dude, ostracized, unattractive, like only child, grew up, growing up in a country that my parents didn't understand, like super sensitive, never felt like I fit in. And like, I'm, the, I'm up on stage being like, I'm the man, I'm right. gonna beat right. you. Well, fronting. You know fronting, I mean? exactly. Yeah, fronting. Faking like, the funk. Exactly. And 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 I don't you know, I don't really blame you for that. Like I think it takes a certain kind of courage and like just like balls to go, I'm gonna be an actor, I'm Indian, there's no there's nobody has paved has paved this road in front of me. You yeah. Know? So how else are you going to break down those doors and get noticed? without a little bluster. Yeah, there's a lot of just false confidence moments for sure. <laughs> yeah. I'm just like- I'm sure you got taken down a peg too here and there. Always. Yeah. I mean, always. Was I've, there, who was the first like kind of breakout Indian performance, you know, ahead of you where you were like, wow, something's happening. So, I mean, you have guys like Om Puri, the old school guys, like Om Puri who did City of Joy, and then you, which was like in the 90s with Patrick uh -huh. Swayze, um, not a great movie, but, um, and Nasruddin Shah, and then, you know, there, Asif Manvi was there for a long time, right? but he was sort of under the radar and he, was, he wasn't on my radar. The first guy that I saw, and you know, he loves when I shout him out, and it's true, is like Ajay Naidu in Office Space. When I saw him in this cult classic movie, I was like, oh, the OG's going in. Like, that's my guy. Ajay Naidu is my guy and he's still my guy and he knows he's my OG. And like, if I don't know if he listens to this podcast. I mean, everybody on planet earth listens to this no, podcast. I, I, I hope wish. he does, but he's if he my does OG. hit us up, cause I'd like to know. That's the first time I saw somebody with brown skin and I was like, ding, 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 ding. Mm -hmm. Okay, cool. It's possible. And then of course- What year was that? I want to say 97, 98. Yeah. And then of course, uh, Cal Penn mm -hmm. broke through. And that there was this boom in around the late 90s, early 2000s of um, Indian American produced independent cinema. There was this movie called Chutney Popcorn, American Daisies, ABCDs, which means American Born Confused Daisies. There was like this little renaissance of independent Indian film. Right. None of the movies, sorry guys, were that great. But that's not the point. The point is that they were being done. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. And then Cal Penn blew up with Harold and Kumar. And by the time I was out of college, I think Aziz Ansari was doing stand-up and he was already doing Human Giant. And there were people making moves. Das Racist, the music group was around with Heems and um, Apple, Apple, no, what is Hari's brother, Hari Kundabola's brother is in that. Uh -huh. um, but Heems is a buddy of mine. And people were making moves 
But Ajay Naidu was the point where I was right. like, this can happen. What year What year was the Danny Boyle movie? Slumdog? Slumdog, yeah. 2001, was it? Or later? I don't know. It seems like it's a long time Maybe ago. Maybe 2005. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Within the last, but that 10 had years. some of the kind of the old school Indian actor dude, like the the like the game show host dude. Is a dude uh, yeah, I know Kapoor. For a long time, right? I know Kapoor is the yeah. man. Yeah, if yeah. anyone wants to see a great Bollywood movie, go see Mr. India. Mm-hmm. It's awesome. He uh-huh. can he turns invisible. Right. <laughs> it's dope. So the light bulb's kind of going on, and you're like, okay, like there's some there's some there's some people out there. So what happens? Here's the interesting thing about Hollywood, though, and and, and um, stereotype the stereotypical nature of it and the idea of boxes. And as you and I have, I've followed you and your career and your journey and path and boxes don't exist. Like you are all about just finding efficient spiritual ways to express yourself. And I think that is what we hope for and we strive for as people. Now the profession that I've chosen is uh, not so amenable to that experience. Well, the difference is that I can I can speak into this microphone directly to the audience. There's no intermediary. Yes. I mean, Hollywood is all about, you know, doors that you're trying to break down and, you know, committees and all kinds of, you know, people that have to sign off on projects getting made and how they're made. So you're asking me to be your co-host. Yeah. <laughs> Anytime, dude. I accept. It's so nice to do this with somebody who's a good talker. Oh, like good. It takes all the stress away. Like It's it's awesome, man. But but the the to speak, this is a very good um, example of how Hollywood works. So Dev Patel, the main actor mm-hmm. in Slumdog Millionaire, movie wins the Oscar, right? I mean, best picture. So it is the most lauded movie of its year. And you'd expect a star of an Oscar winning picture to have so many fucking scripts at his doorstep that he immediately launches into movie stardom. It should be that easy, mm-hmm. right? Any other Best Picture winner you look at, guaranteed, if you have a an actor of, um, indi- like a white actor, or even uh, now, thankfully, black actors, they will have a career. So fast yeah, forward. Yeah, well, they'll, they'll, they'll at least get tons of options and opportunities. Exactly. And if they make the wrong choices, right. or, they, or those, they, they don't execute well, that's only gonna last so long. But the, the opportunities the, will immediately be available. Yeah, the door will open. Mm-hmm. So Dev Patel, lead of this movie, Slumdog Millionaire. Uh, cut to a year later, two years later. I'm sitting in a room with Dev Patel, star of the Oscar-winning movie, Slumdog Millionaire, and both of us are going head-to-head auditioning for Aaron Sorkin for the newsroom. What the fuck is Dev Patel doing in a room with me? Mm -hmm. Because at that point, I have no credits. Maybe I've done two failed pilots. I've gotten a a very fancy Lucille Lortel nomination for an (laughs) off-Broadway acting award. And I've won a few rap battles and I'm in an improv freestyle Uh group. But how many, but in the script, I would imagine it called for Indian American actor. Yeah. So there's numbers, how many dudes are there? There's and, only like 10 dudes, right? Yeah, but he's, why not the offer? Mm-hmm. Also, that right, is a right, TV right, show right. and he's number eight or nine or 10 on that call sheet. This is the star of an Oscar winning fucking movie. Mm-hmm. And maybe it's the decisions he made, but from my perspective, I'm like, yo man, you couldn't have fucked this up that quick. <laughs> like mm-hmm. what, what is going on? So that is the type of thing like right. I'm, Kunal Nair. He did book it. But he shouldn't have had to audition. Exactly. Kunal Nair, who, uh, Big Bang Theory. This is another guy. We're talking about nine seasons. What are they making? 1.5 an episode? Like, Crazy they're money. breaking bank. 
and he and I are sitting in a room together for a role in a Ron Howard movie, the title I can't remember. And we both meet Ron Howard and we have to meet. And I'm like, I've just come from South by Southwest. I've been rocking it with my group. I am hungover as fuck. And I'm just like, Ugh. and here's Kunal Nair, a certified television behemoth star. What am I doing in the room with him? Mm-hmm. Why is he not just getting the offer? That's why, that's where when it's like, we need an Indian dude, let's have options. It's mm-hmm. like, no, man. Right. Reach out Can to the- we really bank on that dude? It's like, yes, bro. <laughs> he's he's on the number one show on television. Why am I coming up? At, why am I coming up? Well, I think there's the a room? weird thing that happens, which is if it was a white dude, you'd be like, oh, well, that movie succeeded because that white dude carried the movie and has so, chari- so much charisma. And when there is- you know, an ethnic actor, for lack of a better, you know, a sure. non-white actor, yeah. then the the thinking is, well, oh, it was the director, or it was there's a dismissiveness, right? Yeah, that gets it's just built into the whole thing. You know, I'll speak to that really quickly. Which I did barbershop, right? Right, and that was interesting. Again, I'm the only one like me in that movie. Like, I'm surrounded by amazing black actors and comedians, and it, they're incredible, but I'm still the only Indian in the entire room. Um, and that's an interesting experience too. Like I'm always sort of the odd man out, but the, and that's fine because I'm here to work with artists ultimately more than I am what ethnic background they are, right? I'm here to work with talented and great people who inspire me. Um, but I asked one of the executives of that movie, I was like, do you think Aziz or an Indian person could headline a studio film right now? He's like, absolutely not. That'll never happen. You can do an independent movie, good luck. But to speak to what you said about a white actor carrying a movie. So if I'm sitting in a room with all Indian people or Indians, Filipinos, you know, Asian, non-white people, and you go, hey man, who in the group is most like Tom Cruise? We'll know. Because we've been watching movies with straight white male leads for so long right. that we know which one of us is Tom Cruise. We know who the Will Smith is. Like, and straight, you know, Will Smith is an outlier, right? He's like this, a, a movie star. Well, he's transcended race. Yeah, and Denzel, right? Mm-hmm. And so like, why does he have to transcend race? That's the crazy thing. But anyway, like, we'll know. We'll be like, yo, cool, 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 cool. But if you sit with your friends with uh, in a white group, uh, a group of white males, and you're like, which one of you guys is most like Jackie Chan? Can you answer that? Yeah, no, that's tougher. For right? Sure. Because you haven't had the experience of empathizing and being in the shoes of Asian Americans for your entire life. Mm-hmm. I've been doing this my whole life, comparing myself to a white ideal or in some cases a black ideal, because those are the predominantly the two choices you have when growing up in this country. Uh, you pick a side. Yeah. You either wear a polo shirt or you wear, um, you know, Tim's. <laughs> and like, that's kind of like, th- those are your choices. So that's just, that's something that Dante Bosco, who uh, is an actor and a friend of mine, also he played Rufio in the movie Hook. Mm-hmm. He brought that up to me. We worked on a song together recently and I was like, that's so, that's on point. If you sit down with a group of white people and he's like, which one of you guys is most like Utkarsh? They're going to be like, none of Why would anyone want to be like Utkarsh? <laughs> I don't want to be an Indian dude. <laughs> It is an interesting like reversal of perspective though. Yeah. I want to think about that a little bit more, but I think, you know, look, it is changing. It is improving, perhaps not as quickly as it, as it should. Uh, 
but I think it's an interesting time. You know, look, Camille had it. You know, the big sick was super lauded. I th more people should have seen that movie. It's a um, great movie, and if you haven't, you should. Uh, and you're getting, you seem to be getting quite a few opportunities. Like the doors are opening for you. So, uh, you know, you're having success. You're on the cusp of bigger success. How do you think about? how you carry that mantle of being of being a uh, you know an Indian American actor like do you feel like a certain responsibility and how you communicate around that and do you think of it in terms of of you know how you advocate for change or like what is your disposition around the whole thing um i feel a deep sense of responsibility i am indian american and i am an actor to deny that would be foolish. I've experienced several uh, ups and downs as a result of, you know, my ethnic background and how people perceive that. And I feel blessed at the same time. This is not a black and white issue. I am very grateful to work. I'm not saying that like, this is what a lot of people are like, you work all the time. What do you have to complain about? It's not about being a complaint. It's about being a spokesman or a representative of a community that's underrepresented. That's what I'm here for. So for instance, this Good Morning America thing, like Hurry is in Chicago. They wanted to talk to Hurry. Hurry said no. So they asked me. Now, I could be like, I don't want to go on Good Morning America. Like, I got, I don't want to eat a cheesesteak and go to bed. But somebody has to show up. Somebody has to represent the community. Do you think about that like 14-year-old Utkarsh yeah. at home who doesn't have any role models who might be tuning in to watch that? Yeah. You're speaking to the exact reason. Yeah. Because as a kid, like Will Smith was my role model. Michael Jordan was my role model. Michael Jackson was my role model. Bo Jackson was my role model. Like maybe, uh, who else was there? Uh, Jean-Claude Van Damme. You know what I mean? None of those guys look like me, right? Mm-hmm. But the amount of people now who are like, hey, man, I saw you in Pitch Perfect or when I saw you on Mindy Project, young people, you know, your podcast really means something to us. Please keep doing it. Like, it's so good to know that somebody like us is out there going through the same stuff that we go through as creative people every day. That means a lot. And I'm mm -hmm. sure you get the same type of response in your field. And as you know, like, that's, I mean... It's really, really helpful. It's super helpful as I go through my own life knowing that I'm not alone and that the, the work that I do is not being seen as either good or bad. It's right. being seen as a representation of possibility. We're brought to you today by recovery.com. I've been in recovery for a long time. It's not hyperbolic to say that I owe everything good in my life to sobriety. And it all began with treatment and experience that I had that quite literally saved my life. And in the many years since, I've in turn helped many suffering addicts and their loved ones find treatment. And with that, I know all too well just how confusing and how overwhelming and how challenging it can be to find the right place and the right level of care, especially because unfortunately, not all treatment resources adhere to ethical practices. It's a real problem, a problem I'm now happy and proud to share has been solved by the people at recovery.com who created an online support portal designed to guide, to support, and empower you to find the ideal level of care tailored to your personal needs. 
They've partnered with the best global behavioral health providers to cover the full spectrum of behavioral health disorders, including substance use disorders, depression, anxiety, eating disorders, gambling addictions, and more. Navigating their site is simple. Search by insurance coverage, location, treatment type, you name it. Plus, you can read reviews from former patients to help you decide. Whether you're a busy exec, a parent of a struggling teen, or battling addiction yourself, I feel you. I empathize with you. I really do. And they have treatment options for you. Life in recovery is wonderful, and recovery.com is your partner in starting that journey. When you or a loved one need help, go to recovery.com and take the first step towards recovery. To find the best treatment option for you or a loved one, again, go to recovery.com. What is the meaning of life? What happens when we die? What is our purpose here? If like me, you ponder these delicious existential questions, I have got just the thing for you. It's called Soul Boom. It's a podcast hosted by everyone's favorite best friend and my friend, the deep thinking and deeply hilarious Rain Wilson where he communes with intellectuals and entertainers, theologians and philosophers in intimate exchanges that tickle the mind, heart, and yes, the soul. Subscribe to Soul Boom on YouTube or wherever you get your podcasts and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. There is so much health information out there. It can feel overwhelming and leave even the most well-intentioned confused about what's what and who to trust. Well, the first person that I call when I'm seeking clarity is my friend and nutrition expert, Simon Hill, host of the fantastic podcast, The Proof. Each week, Simon matches wits with brilliant scientists, translating their evidence-based insights into actionable tools for better well-being. Subscribe to The Proof, available wherever you get your podcasts, and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. It would be great to kind of um, contextualize it a little bit, because if you look at your IMDb, you're like, oh, this dude works all the time. Like, look at all his credits. It goes from one thing to the next. And I know you well enough to know that that's not necessarily, you know, it hasn't been this like linear upward, upwardly mobile trajectory yeah. for you. So like, what do people, you know, who have some familiarity with you or or, or or your work, like, what do they not get about like what you've had to do to get to the place that you're at? Um, what do they not get? You mean like how? Well, it's sort of like, oh yeah, you're Indian, but it doesn't seem to have been a barrier for you. Look at you, you work all the time. Oh, but you just don't see the nose, my friend. Like you don't hear the it nose. It's a business of nose. Yeah, you don't, you, this is part of that nuclear pellet thing, right? Richard Dreyfus came and spoke to my college class and he looked sad. I don't know what that man was going through. Someone asked a question and he was like, I had a nuclear pellet in me once and it died. And I've never been able to get it back. And he said that shit. And I was like, this sad motherfucker. What I year am, was that? This was 2003, four. I went to his house for a project and it must have been 2000, 2000 maybe 2006. Mm -hmm. It was around that same time. And I had a similar experience with him where God. I left kind of feeling 
bummed out a little bit. Bummed and just totally, I was like, you're going to sit in a room full of open sponge minds and say some fucking horrible shit like that? Keep your God, like be of service, teach. Anyway, my nuclear- I think he is a teacher now. I hope so. I think he's like a professor or something. I tell but you anyway, what, go ahead. my nuclear pellet isn't going to die because I get to be here and share with you someone who inspires me and fills me up. I get to go and hopefully be willing to be educated. But the no, right? The no is constant. I've done 13 pilots, 12 of them have failed, and every one of those pilots had a price tag attached to it, right? This is what it's going to be. I've worked with some of the best people on projects you will never see. Every year, pilot, fail, pilot, fail. Right, and for people that are listening that, that aren't quite familiar, oh. when you do a pilot, you, and as a lawyer, I used to negotiate these deals, I mean, you're basically... Oh, you're signing a contract for the next seven, seven years of your life. Yeah. And as an actor, like literally your life would change in, in such an unbelievably dramatic way, literally overnight, if the pilot gets picked up and goes to series, you go if from, it's a network show. Yeah, you go from having a lot of free time and making, let's say, it's, let's say on a good year, you make $50,000 to making $1.2 million a year for seven years right. immediately. And still living in a one-bedroom apartment for $1,200 a month. <laughs> now, I don't know what it's like because that's never happened. I yeah. did finally break through that ceiling this year with Showtime's with White, White Famous. Famous. We did right. one season. It mm -hmm. got canceled. Oh, it got canceled. I didn't know that. That's a win for me, dude. I dude. just did my first right. full season of television after 10 years, 13 pilots of being like, is this one going to go? Is this one going to go? Is this one going to go? Of all those pilots, what was the one that you thought like, this one is incredible, it's going to go, or the people involved, it's just too good to not oh. to not go? Two years ago, Kevin Connolly, Vanessa Williams, myself, Jamie Lynn Siegler, Tim McAuliffe, writer, Fantasy Life, it was called, uh, based on the fantasy football guy's um, book, whose name I can't remember right now. Um, but everybody's yelling at your their car stereos right, right now. Exactly. Like, we know, yeah. where are you, idiot? <laughs> this is who it is. I know, calm down, people. It was a show about Fox Sports Network shot uh, about football and on Fox. It was like, it was like Fox. It was like, here we go, here you go. Single camera, just spoon feed success mm -hmm. into you. We got football players. Rob Gronkowski was there. Russell Wilson was a guy. Like we could have just gotten anyone all the time, and for some reason, didn't get picked up. Didn't get picked up. It's so crazy that model, though. They spend so much money, and then they don't pick these things up. Nobody ever sees these pilots. They go to some graveyard somewhere, and because the network <clears throat> owns the story, it never goes any further. Like I feel like with all of these outlets now, there should be more fluidity with all of these pilots that don't get picked up, where there's some flexibility that they can be sold to other places and get developed and come out yeah. of shows. I mean, that's kind of what happened to me. That's sort of the process I'm in right, excuse me, in right now, which is, which is where I'm at. I mean, to really speak to like why my career has like gotten better, like, you know, I know you have a history with booze. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like I was, I was not living a good lifestyle. And I'll tell you, like, the most poignant story is this. If it's a little bit long. This is what I'm here to talk about, dude. So to speak to Freestyle Love Supreme, what happened is um, about seven years ago, six years ago, 
Lynn does this Alexander Hamilton song at the White House. Well, let's back it up even further a little bit. Sure. If we could. Um, where do you first meet Lynn? Oh, in that room. And in that, that was audition. It. You didn't know him before that. No, we're like two dogs sniffing each other's right. butts and being like, I think we might be from the same litter. Like, and where does the partying come in? Like when you're in New York and at NYU in high yeah, school? Yeah, I would say that I was full blown by 18 or 19. Uh-huh. I would say I was like going hard in the paint. So you were you were ramping up in high school, then you get to New York City, which is just like Disneyland for alcoholics. Yeah, high school, I was a pretty good kid. Mm-hmm. And then once I got to New York, by sophomore or junior year of college, I had put completely checked out. Like I was like, you know, whatever it is, to all the shrooms, all the acid, everything, right? Like I, I tried, I don't need to get into specifics, but you know, we did a lot of crazy like fish related behaviors. Right. You know what I'm saying? Or like fish, like PHI, like yeah. fish the band, like string right. okay. cheese incident. Yeah, like, I gotcha. Umphreys, I don't even know what that is. I know string <laughs> cheese incident, and I yeah. know fish. Sound tribe sector nine. I'm trying to remember all of my friend Chase's favorite bands because I just went wherever he went because that's where the stuff was. Um, so yeah, by the time I'm 2021, 20, this is my lifestyle. And I feel guilty about it. I'm like, I probably shouldn't be doing this. Like, this isn't what a good Indian kid should do. Like, you know, I'm not able to show up to things with as much gusto, but it's who I am. Like, this mm -hmm. is hip hop. This is New York. This is like 22, man. This is what we do. Smoke weed every day. Like, this right. is the lifestyle, you know? And like, when you don't, uh, when you're not getting work, you can always sell and you can make at least enough money to like stay stay afloat you're not losing money mm -hmm. that's for sure you go to jail a couple times for like some little things yeah but like no biggie dude no biggie yeah so what i was spray painting in the lower east side it's like it's, it's what you gotta do it's the dumbest for so, some cred right I was, yeah i was in this <laughs> hip-hop group called the b-tards bad name um i love those guys um and we spray painted on the wall in big gold letters the b-tards will outrun you and then in two seconds it was like whoop whoop <laughs> <laughs> and we did not run, we did not skip, jog, or walk. We stayed stationary and went directly to jail. <laughs> uh -huh. And it was like little things like that. Like one time I had an open container on the subway. And that's nothing. That's a ticket. That's nothing. I thought you could still, can you not do it in the brown bag? Nope. No, can't. They can't that's do what it we anymore. did. I see. We got, we got pinched. I but here's the, the thing. I had a prior from that spray painting incident. Uh -huh. So you go directly to jail. Now what, where I got lucky, and I have never told this story before. That's crazy because the one thing about New York City cops is they got their eyes on like the most important shit. Like they can't be bothered with some dude in the subway with an open container. Me and my buddy So what do you, how did you like, that's amazing we that they would even care. Yeah, I don't know what we did, but I will tell you this, like for the, White people listening, you guys really have an ability to yell at cops that the rest of us don't. Mm. And you should appreciate that and use it as much as possible. If I was a white person, I'd be yelling at a police officer at least once a day. I would just be like- I still don't think it's a good idea if you're white, but certainly not as dire as it would be if you uh, were to do that. At least three times a day, you should say something mean to a cop and just be like, ha ha, that's my privilege in life. Um, I'm only half joking. But uh, so- that was a one of those experiences where, look, we get pinched. We're only there for an overnight. But here's the thing. I've got weed on me. 
which is a misdemeanor, but I've also got a bag of cocaine in my pocket. And it was like in that little coin pocket that you have in your mm-hmm. jeans. And I was like, my friend Charlie is yelling at the cops and he's being, you know, obnoxious. And I was like, you have to shut the fuck up. Like I'm actually in a problem situation mm-hmm. here. And lucky for me, by the grace of whatever, um, obviously it's my luck because at this point I'm the center of the universe and I've done enough shrooms to know that I'm Jesus. But like the cop searched my jeans with rubber gloves. And when he went into that pocket, he didn't feel the bag. So I'm sitting in jail with cocaine in my pocket and nobody knows. Wow. And they let us out six hours later. And I'm just like, so if you if you had been busted for that felony, oh yeah, I mean I'm not going home that night. Yeah, that's for sure. There's no way. Right. And so, so you got spared there. All right. So let's fast forward to to Lynn. Yeah. So to 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 basically like, so I meet Lynn. Blah blah blah. We do that. We're there. And then seven years ago, Lynn's like, I got something for you. I got something good. I'm working on something special. I got something for you. And was Lynn a student at NYU? No, Lynn went to Wesleyan. We oh, met did. We met when I was a senior, coming out of senior year in college. So mm-hmm. I met all those guys. I met Lynn, Chris. Through Freestyle Love Supreme. Exactly. And we did that. We went to Vancouver for Just for Laughs Festival. We, uh, we performed, we performed a lot. We've been on stage together hundreds of times. Uh-huh. Um, and then Lynn's like, I got this thing. I got this thing, you know, this Hamilton thing. You want to do it. And I was just coming off a of pitch perfect and I was hot shitting it. And I also at this point was like living a lifestyle, which was a daily, I was in a daily lifestyle at this point. Daily using. Yeah. Daily drinking. And we did um, Hamilton, what became Hamilton, excuse me, at um, Lincoln Center. We started that. And I was like, so, so I think- it was like you're developing the material with him and like, yeah, David we're like and like who else is there? Oh, like that basically, first time it was me and Chris, John Rua, James Monroe, Ico Hart. So basically, just freestyle love supreme dudes. Kind of, yeah. So Lynn's like, I got this thing. Did you have a sense like, whoa, this is like, this is a thing? So at first, when we did it at Lincoln Center, when we did like a Hamilton mixtape, I think is what it was called. And but I for played, an audience, or you're just yeah, workshop full it audience. Uh huh. And I played Aaron Burr, which is the lead role that won right. the Tony for best actor. Um. Uh, you know, it was good. It was like, yeah, Lynn's dope. This is my friend. He's dope. I'm dope. Like, we're all good. This is going to be good. Like, I have no context. I'm like, I just did Pitch Perfect. My movie, like, I'm blowing up. Like, I'm good. I'm on the Mindy Project. About Wait, maybe I hadn't done Mindy Project yet. I was full of Vim it. and vigor and yeah, ego. and full right. of that shit. Um, and I was more concerned about where the party was at after than the work itself, which is what I learned later on when I stopped drinking, is that what happened after was so much more important than the experience itself. Mm-hmm. I wanted to know where we were going, what we were doing, who we were doing it with, and whatever happened on stage is like the least of my fucking interests and priorities. So fast forward a few months. And a total lack of appreciation for this unbelievable opportunity that oh, just fell into your lap. All day, every day. Appreciation, you should be so lucky to have me. Right. <laughs> like, so a few months pass. And then we go up to Poughkeepsie to a New York stage and film um, to workshop again. And then now we've got sort of what became a lot of the core group. You got Chris Jackson, David joined. I was there. Um, 
Joshua Henry, who just played Aaron Burr uh, here in LA. If you guys got a chance to see him, he was he's incredible. Mm-hmm. Um, and several other folks who I can't remember right now. But you've got Tommy Kale, you've got Alex Lackamore, the music director, you've got Lynn. And here's the thing, I'm not a trained musical theater guy. It's not like I can just show up and be dope. Mm-hmm. I have to work. And like, I have a few skills which help which is to say that like, if I hear something, I can mimic it. I've got sort of like an audiographic thing. At least that's what Alex says. But if you're drunk at nine in the morning or 10 in the morning, that skill- That ain't gonna work. No, man. Yeah. So I went through that week with great, uh, with an inability to perform in the way that they wanted me to and knew that I could. Mm -hmm. My- Did people like- David like show up understanding like, oh, this is this is gonna be like a big thing. Yeah. Like I'm here 110%. Yeah, for sure. Mm-hmm. People took it seriously. And Chris Jackson sat me down and he was like, you know, this is their life. This is Lynn this is and like Tommy and day. Alex. This is their future. This is how they're gonna put their kids through college. This means the world to them. And you know, it's not some little shit. It's Tommy Kale and Lin-Manuel Miranda. Like we already done been through In the Heights. You saw what that was. You're fucking up. And I was like, Lynn's songs are too hard and I can't sing them. And he's like, you know every Yelp and whoop to every Michael Jackson song ever written, don't you? Why can't you learn Lynn's stuff? It's half Who's telling you this? Christopher Jackson, uh-huh. who played George Washington, right. who's my big brother in Freestyle Love So Supreme. he's trying to have your back and go, look, man, you can do this. You have the skills, but you got to sort your shit out. Yeah, you got to focus. Mm-hmm. And meanwhile, I'm at the bar every night, unable to do that. So we perform. Um, I am underwhelming in my performance, right? And to fast forward quite a bit, obviously I'm not sitting here talking to you about my starring role in Hamilton. They had to go in a different direction. They were, it wasn't for me at that time. Mm -hmm. I was unable to meet the moment because of what was going on in my life, which is really embarrassing and hard to say to a bunch of, people in their cars who just yelled at me for not knowing a fantasy football guy. Um, but yeah, well, everyone likes to think that that they would acquit themselves differently, but I think it's it's so powerful, man. So, and uh, and, and I, it takes courage to tell that story and I appreciate you sharing it with everybody. So what happens then is like, you sorry, were you? But say yeah, something? but I'm just saying, like you know, that it's it's such a palpable thing, like to to not to be so in your immaturity and your disease to not really understand the opportunity in front of you, and to be unable to avail yourself of your God given talent to just show up and do what everyone else is doing, and then in retrospect, you know, fast forward several years later to look back through the rearview mirror and to see and truly appreciate what Hamilton became. It must have been very difficult for you to not do the, you know, coulda, shoulda, woulda, what would yeah. my life have been like had well, of I course just I did showed that. up sober. Of course I did that. What, ha- what happens is, is I get sober and as I'm getting sober and Branton, for anyone who's dealt with substance stuff or who, who's struggling with it, you know that when you, and you know, when you first turn, turn off the booze and, and the drugs and stuff, you're a babe, you're a brand new person. Everything is raw. What am I? My routine was based on this behavior. I now have to change all my behaviors. Who am I? So I'm this brand new person in the world. 
And I'm like, look at me, I'm brand new and I'm special and I'm clean and I'm doing everything I got to do to be a good guy and a cool guy and a nice guy. And everywhere I look, everywhere I go in this new experience, the specter and shadow of my biggest mistake is over me and blocking out everything else. Mm Because people know. You do a quick Google search, it's like, oh, you played Aaron Burr? Everyone knows I'm friends with Lynn. We're homies. We're very good friends. So it's not like, and they supported me, right? Like they fully, everyone is like, nobody was like, hey man, you should probably keep drinking. (laughs) Like everyone was supportive. So it's one of those things where now I'm sober, Hamilton is blown the fuck up. But did did Lynn fire you or like, how did that go down? They just kind of said, they hey, just kind of moved in another out. direction. And I called Tommy and I was like, hey man, like, what's up? Like, we're going to the public? And he was like, no dude, like, I, I'm really glad I know now why you dropped the ball the way you did, but what you did, we had to move on. Yeah, it doesn't work for us. And I was like, can, can I audition again? He said, yeah, but I mean, I knew I wasn't going to get it. Ship has sailed. But I flew myself out to New York. I prepped the material, showed up early, and I sang, and I did my best. And it was fucking humbling as shit, man. It was one of those, like, and they walked out of the room, and I was changing, and I had nowhere to go. I was, like, in New York for a day. Mm. I was newly sober. I was just trying to get my shit together. And I know that that went a long way for them. Of like, whoa, this egotistical piece of right, shit. Right, that's an act of humility. You know, it'll be like, hey, I'm going to suck. I fucked up. I'm going to come up and hat in hand and and like. And I didn't even realize that's what I was doing. I, honestly, like it had to be explained to me by Tommy. He had to be like, when you did it, this, this is how I felt. So Hamilton blows up and it hurts, right? I'm like there, I get to see the show and like they're giving me I mean, love. It's unprecedented. It's like nothing, nothing in culturally, it was, it was just a, the biggest outlier ever. Oh yeah. It blew up in the way that it did. And it's all my best friends in it. So like they're sending me birthday messages in costume, like Lynn, like Lynn and I, basically the way we communicate is through freestyle rap videos. Like so you text them back. We text back other? and forth videos. Uh-huh. So I don't know how many we have at this point. Like if someone, anyone ever archived it, it's like Five you should years. put that together. That would be amazing. Yeah, we should. We should, but I don't, it's like our thing. Right. But like, anyway, like we, like for instance, this week was a chicken box and a shingles rap videos were uh-huh. done. I don't know if anyone would find them interesting except <laughs> for us. Dude, I would, I think you are underestimating how much people would be into that. Well, uh, I'll, I'll talk to him about it and I know he'll be like, Really, dude? Let's not. <laughs> but he's like, I say right. some fucked up shit. Yeah. Um, well, there is something kind of nice and beautiful and pure about just having like a private, yeah, little, like friendship like that. That's not for public consumption. It just it, it keeps us in touch in a fun way. Mm-hmm. Um, go ahead, I interrupted you. That's okay. So it it blows up and um, it hurts. It hurts a lot to not be there and like to see your really good friends doing something that you were a part of. And it's great success. And at the time, like, I'm not really like doing that much. You know, I'm doing some pilots here and there. And like, no TV show is ever going to be Hamilton. You know what I mean? And you're just seeing people blow up. Like, David deserves it. He's a homie. We just did a movie called Blind Spotting. Right. You were at Sundance. I yep. want to talk about that in a minute. But. Um, let me, so I'll blaze through this story. It hurts, it hurts, it hurts. And what happens is, is it culminates, I've never watched the Tonys, but because I wanted to beat the shit out of myself, 
I watch the Tonys. Just to torture yourself. Yeah, of course. I watch the Tonys and I see Leslie Odom, who's so talented, by the way. Like when I watch him play Aaron Burr, I realize and understand why I'm not playing Aaron Burr. Like, let's not get it twisted. That dude is for real ferocious. And if I had stayed with the project, the character would have been vastly different. But that's not what happened. They went in a different direction and Leslie, I could never play Aaron Burr today. I mm-hmm. don't have the chops. But I watch him get the Tony for Best Actor and I cry. Cry woe is me tears. <laughs> and how long had you been sober at that point? Two years? Two years, maybe? A little less. Boo-hoo, boo-hoo, boo-hoo me. Mm. And I'm so sad. And as you know, from the work that we do to keep our minds right, I put pen to paper and I started writing. And I kept writing. What is, what is the story? Where are the feelings? I wrote four or five songs. I wrote what ended up being an 18, 19 page treatment, basically a graphic novel. And uh, it, I wrote a hip hop musical about a guy who missed out on being in the biggest hip hop musical mm-hmm. of all time. About sobriety, about missed opportunities, about how we deal with being a new person in the world when the one thing that you wish you had is ubiquitous, is everywhere. It's like if you broke up with a girl and you missed her and on every street corner was her face. Right. And I took that story to Tommy Kale, who directed Hamilton. And I was like, hey, man, you know how much it hurts. You know what it is. Here's what I did. What do you think? And he said, well, I fired you from the first job. Let's do this. He's like, I think this is self-deprecating. It's honest. It's true. It's funny. It's sweet. Um, In many ways, it's like a love letter to Lynn. uh, Because otherwise, he wouldn't let me do it. (laughs) I got Lynn's blessing. And, you know, we developed it. Just to speak to what you were saying earlier, we developed it at Amazon. Amazon underwent this huge change. And now they're not going with, like, quirky great shows they want to do like lord of the rings style whatever they're called yeah they're gonna spend a billion dollars on that yeah so amazon was like yeah we're not really gonna do this now so they bought it they bought it and they gave it back oh they did give it back because i remember when you sold it yeah so now we have it we have it again and we're we're going out with it but that the point is is it's like that's the best case scenario you drop the freaking ball. You tell a story about dropping the ball. And then the person who fucking dropped the, like, who was like, you dropped the ball. It's more than that, Utkarsh, because what it is, is it's taking ownership of the character defects that led to that situation. It's writing about it in an open and honest and vulnerable way to take even deeper ownership of it. And then finding a way to convey that story in a way that can be instructive for other people to understand, you know, what you went through and what you've learned from that. Ideally. It's like a, it's like a beautiful act of service I done so. through the lens of your art form. Thanks. I mean, I, I hope so. I mean. But to take like that thing that, that I, I mean, I just can't imagine like the, the scope of the pain that that must have been like, <laughs> yeah, to like to like literally every day have to see Hamilton everywhere you turn. Yeah, like, I mean, I, just, and then, I can't imagine that. And the thing is, dude, you stayed sober through that. Like, yeah. if there was ever an excuse to drink and say fuck it, but it's the opposite. The Hamilton is the excuse to stay sober. Hamilton is the reason. Like when you look at it and you go, "Fuck it," we all have fuckets. Ah, oh, fuck it, man. I want some champagne. 
God damn, wine's good. Come on. Blue label? Gimme. But then you go, um, do you remember Hamilton? <laughs> like, <laughs> like, do you remember what you missed? Like, do you remember, do you know, like, forget the friendships lost. I mean, not, those are the most important things, to be honest. Like, my mother, my mother and I, and my father and I have a great relationship. My mom doesn't cry. She knows where I am. She knows that if I don't talk to her for a couple of days, I'm cool. You know what I mean? Like, my friends uh, ask me to take care of their dogs. They ask me to officiate their weddings. They ask me to be best man at their weddings. Like, they know that when they make a plan with me, I'll show up. Like I'm here, I'm there. But in terms of my career, which like you said, is doing really well, I'm happy. I'm blessed and I'm grateful to be working with awesome people and to show up on set and to be a version of myself that is my ideal or at least close to it in terms of how I treat other people. And, um, you know, that Hamilton quote unquote loss, it's a loss. Why am I saying quote unquote is a great reason to be like, hey, man, <laughs> like, you don't want to go back on that box. Right, but it presents a choice. Like, that choice is going to break some people and it's going to make others, right? Like, you can look at that and go, hey, man, this is the, the biggest instructive lesson I'm ever going to learn. Yeah. Or you can just, like, sort of use it to fuel victimhood and tell yourself that you're a piece of shit until it's so painful that you're faced with nothing, no other choice but to drink and use. Word, but that's you know. the wonderful thing about getting sober and hanging out with guys like you and being on a spiritual path and being on a growth is like you learn through rep repetitive behaviors that are good to have some self-love and integrity and some self-esteem, which I never truly um, had. I never built it up. So I had like a reserve. So the Hamilton experience may be lowered Mm -hmm. my reserves it's certainly but they but i was constantly feeling refilling by spending time with people like you like we all have missed opportunities in our life and mine is a great story it's certainly one of those holy fuck bro you fucked up yeah. damn bro that must you must feel like shit <laughs> like everyone i tell it to is like jaw Drops. Well, it's so direct, but I mean, you, you, everybody, I think you're right. Everybody does have these. Maybe it's two steps removed from that huge opportunity because yeah. like, oh, I overslept because I was hungover and I couldn't show up for that meeting that would have led to me meeting this other guy who would have talked to that guy who would have talked to that guy that then would have been this thing. Like, you just don't know. Yeah. I mean, mine is, yeah, it's right there in your face. Mm -hmm. It's like one plus one equals Hamilton. <laughs> but like- <laughs> But the right. thing is, is like at throughout the experience, I had the support of people who understood the feelings, who weren't just like, soldier up, boy, like toughen up. Like, you should be happy this. They were like, wow, that's brutal, man. Like, let's talk about it. What's going on? What's, what are those feelings about? You know what you can do? You can put pen to paper. I don't, I don't have the muscle of self-pity. It's so, it, that self-pity muscle is atrophied so much in sobriety. And that's one of the greatest gifts mm -hmm. that I've been given is that when the voice goes, oh man, I'm a butthead and nobody likes me. There's like a stronger voice that's more alive and more grown up and more taken care of that I never had before that just goes, hey man, like I know you're not feeling, you're good, you're, but like I got you, mm -hmm. you're taken care of. You're not <laughs> like, let's look at the resume. You're cool. Did you show up today for all the things you need to show up for? Is your bed made? Is the sink clean? Did you brush your teeth? Cool. You seem like a good guy to me. Right. Like, what, what was the bottom? What brought you in? The bottom was, uh, I fell on my face. Vanity. 
The bottom was vanity. Mm -hmm. I fell on my face. I woke up the next day. I looked in the mirror. I had a black eye. I was bloody. And I was like, oh, no. <laughs> I was like, all I have to do is keep my dog alive and not fuck up my face. And I've, I'm, I'm batting 50%, which is a failing grade. And uh, I got a call from a friend who had been checking in on me. And that was it. That's the last day I drank. Yeah, it's I was done. Man. How long has it been now? Three plus. Yeah, that's good, dude. Yeah. You're, you just celebrated a anniversary recently, right? Well, yeah, I think uh, it's weird because it's, it's messed up. I mean, I, I had that one day outing about yeah. six years ago, so I'm past six years. Yeah. But I went to rehab in 98, so it would be, without that, be, you know, whatever, 20 years, 19 years, but oh, rehab re, reset the clock after the, you gotta like, the four hour respite or whatever. Did they have a good but, VHS uh, collection at your rehab? I don't remember. Did you go to rehab? I spent, uh, I spent some time in summer camp. You did? Okay. <laughs> yeah. No, no. I don't remember VHS. There was, there would be a movie night occasionally. Uh -huh. And there was a television in like a communal room. But it was more like, you know, just going from group session this to group session It was exhausting. That. Yeah. It's exhausting. But part of it's awesome. Like there's part of me now who'd be like, that would be cool to like go to rehab now for like 30 days. And just like work on my shit. <laughs> well, <laughs> like, now, like, you're yeah. like, just take a week off here. Take a month off here. Just you could. There were, I remember when I was in rehab, somebody came for a stint who had had like, you know, a fair amount of sobriety. I can't, I can't remember. I mean, it seemed like a million years to me. Yeah, Maybe they he had, had like 38 days. Yeah, I don't know, but but I was like, you're choosing to come here when you don't have, you know, like you're not, I couldn't understand it, but me, now I kind of get that. There's one other guy from that time named Jackson. And it's like, you see that person in a room, across the room, and it's like, damn, we both, I can't believe we're still here. Mm -hmm. I can't believe we made it. It's incredible. It's a, you know, it's a crippling disease. Yeah. It's a men it's like, it's insane. How did that kind of go over with the, with the parents when you had to talk about, tell them what was going on? Oh man, it's brutal. It's awful. My poor mother. She's so, so sad. Yeah. She was so scared. And my dad really, really like soldiered. Like, I mean, he really like, he read every book on addiction. He read every book on like the pleasure centers in the brain mm. and like what it is. And like, he's got to put his science mind to work yeah, on he's it. He's got right? to understand it to because understand it is scientific. It. Mm -hmm. There's a dopamine receptor. There's a, there's a, that's broken. So like when a normal person drinks five drinks and that they're at a 10, we drink five drinks and we're at an eight right. and we think we got to drink. We have the same tolerance. But when I drink five, I'm at an eight and I will never get higher than an eight. So I will drink and drink and drink and drink and drink and wonder why I can't get drunk, right? Whereas my homies are like, all right, five drinks, I'm good, I need a burrito, I'm going home. The next day they wake up and they don't feel the need. The first thought in their mind is not like, oh, when can I have more of that, mm -hmm. you know? That's how my body and brain I've come to learn works if you put a substance into my body it could even be fortnite bro have you heard of this video game fortnite i have heard of it have yeah. you heard of this i haven't shit? played it i'm awful but i've been playing it for like a week yeah and i'm terrible at it and it's one it's the same thing these games last depending on how bad you are between five and 20 minutes every time a game ends it's like 12 it's 12 a.m look to disco my dog one more game 
12.30, one more game. 1 a.m., yeah, one more it, game, man. 1.30, that's, one more that's game. That's the disease right there in your face. Yeah, 3 a.m., one more game. Whoa. 3.30, well, I don't have to go to the gym tomorrow and I only have to see Rich at two. So like, that's what it is, man. Mm -hmm. If you put something in me that's gonna give me a boost, I'm gonna abuse it. Right, so what are some of your routines to keep it at bay, uh, the beast? I talk to guys like you who understand it. Um, exercise, I play basketball three to four times a week. I'm at the gym several times a week. I make my bed. Uh, making the bed in the morning is a big one. And like medit I meditate and I pray and mm -hmm. we have uh, clubhouses. A secret society. <laughs> yeah, we have secret societies that meet every now and then and get tacos. It's cool, man. And that's kind of like how it is. And there's always somebody who is willing and desperate for help and doesn't know how to um, approach sobriety. So, or, so if somebody like that is listening to this right now, and I assure you there, there are, like, what do you say to that person? Um, I mean, I just said like, what I usually, I'm, I'm the funny one. <laughs> so if I'm like, what's going on, how you doing? Yeah. Oh, that sounds, that sounds pretty, that sounds, I mean, it just depends. If but if somebody's feeling stuck, like they're in that, and I know, dude, cause I get, I get crazy emails all the time from people. They're in that cycle of addiction. They just can't stop drinking. They can't stop using. Well, they don't know what to do. If you Like if that dude called you up or that woman called you up right now and said, I'm drunk right now, I'm listening to the podcast, like tell me what to do. Oh man. Well, there's a place at the front of the phone book that you can look for and they meet all the time. And I would suggest that um, you go meet some people. We all know how you feel. We've all been there. I. It's hard to, it was very, it felt good when I found out I wasn't unique and that when I wasn't special. Sometimes that's very hard. Because you look like a guy who, who fed on that for a long time, being terminally unique. Yeah. But the best thing that's happened to me is to just be like, wow, cool. I've got a family. I got like a real group of people and I'm so, I'm so special, but I'm not unique. Does that make sense? Like I am, there are things about me that make me who I am. And part of the thing that makes me special is that I get to share something and be in a support system with a bunch of people. So like, if you're feeling... It's so hard because everyone, you can't, tough, some people want tough love. Some people mm -hmm. want sweet love. All I'll say is there's a place you can go where you can get the help that you need and it only costs a dollar. Or it's free. Yeah, it's it definitely free. doesn't even free. cost a dollar. I mean, what I, and I agree with that and I would supplement that by just saying, if you don't want to drink or use again, you don't have to, that there is a solution available to you. Um, it's not necessarily for everybody who needs it, it's for those who want it. So the question is, do you want it? And are you willing to do what it takes to, to get it? And if you are willing and you are desperate and you feel broken and alone, that's a great place to start. Word. And I would encourage you know anybody who's listening to set aside whatever preconceived ideas or notions you have about the secret society, find one in your area, show up, raise your hand, find somebody you can talk to, listen, 
look for the similarities rather than the differences and, and try to find somebody who you identify with enough that you can speak to them honestly and tell them what's really going on in your life. And if you can get to that place of honesty and connection with another human being, I think that's a pretty good start to addressing what is only gonna get worse unless you deal with it. Yeah, you can try something new. And if you don't like it, you can go back to your shitty you life. You can always go back. <laughs> you can always to go whatever's back not working. To the, to where you are right now yeah, and yeah. continue to be miserable, no problem. But there is there is a, a there's a way out. And I think you said it best. Like you just don't ever have to feel this way ever again. Mm -hmm. I took that to heart and it changed my life. Mm -hmm. And now you're in blind spotting. Yeah, now we're at Sundance. Now, now I'm like doing, rolling to Sundance with the homies. You're doing so, we, you're in like game over, man. You got like, yeah. you're going away for, you can't, can you, can you talk about what you're about to go do? No. You can't. But I'm going away for six months to do a, it's big. one of those big movies. It's yeah, big which movie. I'm excited about. Soon as that freaking contract gets written down though. I'm going to tell the whole goddamn yeah, world. When is that? Because I can wait on putting this up. Oh, man. We'll, we'll, guess, we'll talk about that guess later. Your is as good as mine. Um, and Blind Spot, so for people that don't know, Blind Spotting premiered at Sundance. Does it, do you guys have a release date? Is it, did that get a yeah, distribution July. deal? I mean, that was made a big splash. Oh, yeah. That's um, Blind Spotting, Starring for those da who don't David, know, yeah. stars David Diggs and Rafael Casal, uh, written by Rafael as well, directed by um, our good buddy Carlos and uh, Janina Gavankar, who's my super homie, uh, Jasmine Safas Jones, and myself, and uh, tons of other great actors. July 27th, Lionsgate releases oh, wow. that. Cool. Game Over Man with the Workaholics Boys is on Netflix right now. That is a wild action comedy, mm -hmm. super gross, like definitely fun. It's Workaholics. For, oh man, it is yeah. so inappropriate, and I do awful things in it, and it's really fun. <laughs> And then there's a movie I did with Brie Larson, which was just released called um, Basmati Blues. Mm. It's a movie musical. It's a romantic comedy that's available on Amazon and on demand and all those things. And if you're in India listening to the Rich Roll podcast, which I'm going to guess is like at least 1.2 billion people like in India listen to this podcast. Of course, you at can, least that many. You can go see it in theaters right now. It's playing in it's India. It's playing throughout India. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's really cool. And you, yeah. you have like an album coming out too, right? I've got an album that I'm working on called Vanity. It's got features from David Diggs, Rafael Casal, Heems from the Sweatshop Boys, uh, The One Shanti, Kali. I think Lynn is going to be on it. Dante wow. Bosco. I got a lot of South Asian artists, MCs, and... Um, feels good it's just like are you are do you have a, a label with that or are you doing that just all independent independent that's pretty cool yeah labels here's the thing 10 years ago we wrote songs me and my buddies those songs are still on in tv and uh, on tv and in movies and nobody gets that money but me and my two buddies mm. and we don't have to we wrote a song on a plane 10 years ago called dang diggy diggy da dang a dang dang diggy dang diggy diggy da dang and those dangs and those diggies are still <laughs> Making this bank at the piggy. Really? So they get licensed out to stuff? Yeah. Wow. That's so that's cool. why the independent route. Uh huh. I've always, uh, I've always done it that way. I don't, I don't like sharing. <laughs> but you're always like you're very industrious. Like you could just be sitting and waiting for the phone to ring, and you're in this weird business where you have very little control over yeah. your destiny. You're just waiting for these gatekeepers to like say, "Come on in." Yeah. But what I see is somebody who who deals with that by 
creating what you can in the interim, whether it's like making a music video with Davey, you know, the 500 Mile song. Davey like, Greenberg, what yeah, up? Yeah, our boy, what's up, Davey? Shave your um, mustache, Davey, looks weird. <laughs> <laughs> I kind of like it on him, it's endearing. Yeah, he looks no? super creepy. So, all right. He looks super creepy. Um, but you're always kind of, you got like these little hustles going all the time. Yeah, here's the thing that I, and it's great that you brought this up, is like, you know, you are in the sweet spot. You create your content. You are the boss. You validate yourself every day with the rock, with the hand paddles on the ground. And but I still have books with publishing companies, and there's you know there's other kinds of things that are somewhat analogous. Oh, fair enough. But you travel. You, your joy is is what you do every day. Right. And to a great extent, so is mine. Like I do what I love for a living, so I almost never work. And that's the truth. But a lot of it is based on other people. And like when we talked about the power of the poison of the no, the no, the no, the no. Problem is, is when you keep hearing no from these motherfuckers, sometimes you think that it has something to do with you. No. Oh, I'm less. I'm less. I'm less. And that's how you get crazy people out there. Crazy actors who are miserable because they seek validation from opinions of other people. If I don't get work, then I am nothing. If these people don't get me a job, then I am nothing. I get my validation from going into the studio and spending my money and working on a song for six hours. That feels great. Or writing a poem or doing a podcast or coming to do this with you. Like this feels better. And, and what I get, the power and the magic that I get from sharing with you, someone who I inspire, who I am inspired by and look up to is that I can go into an audition right now be fully prepared. I care. Mm -hmm. I care about my craft. I'll be memorized. I'll be off book. I'll make strong choices. I'll go in. I'll do it. I'll throw the sides away as soon as I leave in the trash can provided to me right outside the door, and I won't think about it again. Right. That that ability to detach from the results of your labors, right? Because you know, hey, man, whatever happens is supposed to happen, but you know what? Later on today or tomorrow, I'm going back in the studio. Like yeah. just moving. What's the next creative thing? What's yeah. the next creative thing? And that feels great. I mean, that's a wonderful way. And I always tell people when they're like, what do I do? What do I do? I go, rule number one, don't quit. When you think you're, when you quit, like just go to bed, wake up the next day and you'll be fine. Rule number one, don't quit. No, two, don't have a backup plan. Rule number three, finish what you start. When you start it, make sure that shit is done. It might be a piece of fucking shit, but you get it done and you learn how to finish what you start. That's a big deal. And then the create your own content and find something that you love that has nothing to do with how you make money. Mm -hmm. Find something else that validates you, whether it's a relation, like if it's the relationship or you have kids or like you, I don't know, you pogo on the weekends. Like, I don't know, you skydive, you do something, find something. For me, the thing I love most in the world is basketball. I can't, I'm not a professional basketball player. I'm in the chiropractor every week as if I am a professional uh -huh. basketball player, but that's the thing that I do for nothing. There's no reason to do it other than to get better at it while simultaneously declining athletically <laughs> and learning how to play an right. old man game. Uh -huh. And so it's like, 
if I make a three pointer that wins the game in a basketball game, it's um means I you have like a standing game and like dudes you play with and yeah, all, the whole thing. Three right? or four a week. And like yeah. if I make a game winning shot, it feels better than booking an acting job. Right. That's because crazy. I, I know it's weird, uh-huh. <laughs> but that's where I'm at. Right. Well, I think like as as a you know, this millennial, you know, representation of, of multicultural uh, creative expression in Hollywood. Like you're, like you're, you understand something that the generation that precedes you fails to fully embrace with a few exceptions, which is that on some level, you kind of, you know, to override this lack of ability to control your destiny, that you do have to be sort of entrepreneurial about your career with the ex- to the extent that you can create these other projects, right? And to be industrious in that in that pursuit, like whether it's an album or writing songs or doing, you know, the, the like the freestyle stuff that you do or getting up on stage, like I see you doing that stuff all the time. Yeah. And it's like, as an actor, when do you actually get to do your craft, you know, in a professional capacity? Like it's almost never, right? right? You're fired. So how do you, as a creative no person, how do you stoke that fire and remain creatively engaged? And, you know, to, to the creative people that are listening to this, I mean, your laundry list of like things to do and not do, I think is super instructive. Um, but to be engaged creatively with something that inspires you all the time, uh, that doesn't require the yes or no of somebody else, I think right. is crucial. You know, it's, I'll go through months, right? Like I, I went through it in the month of February where I was like, I'm gonna say yes to anything. Like literally whatever someone asks me uh-huh. to do, I'm just gonna say yes to I it. I should have known that, man. I would have asked you to do some stuff. <laughs> yeah. uh, creatively. So like now I'm in a theater company cause someone was like, wanna be in my theater company? I was like, yes. And like, I just was like, let's just muck it up a little bit, right? Kick up some dust mm-hmm. and see what's up. Let's add, let's just add. Like we're getting a little too sedentary. We're a little stagnant. Like let's do some new shit. And like, I'll do that. You know, the other big thing is like, we talked about entitlement and the dark side of that is that you think people owe you anything. And you think that people should work for you for free. No, I pay everyone that I work with. I pay them as as much as I possibly can without breaking, like without going broke. People's time is worth money. And a lot of creative people think that they need to have homie discounts and free friend stuff is like, no, Mm -hmm. no. That's why you go, oh yeah, he said he was gonna do it for free and he never edited it. It took six months to get the edit. Mm -hmm. It's like, yeah, that guy's gotta eat. Conversely, the person who agrees to do stuff for free without valuing their own time and creative input. Yeah, and- I mean, that's a different thing. Like sometimes it's good to do stuff for free. Yeah, it's a case by case I think people are a little too entitled around that, but- I, I try my best to, in some way, value the work that people do with me and and for me, if it, that's the case. And then also, like, it's so basic, but we don't understand. It's like, don't be a dick. Like, how as a leader or as a creative person can you communicate in a loving way, even when things aren't going well? Like, I'm trying to get this producer to get the vocal into the beat that it needs to go on. And mm-hmm. it's so simple to me. And there's a human being out there who would go, why the fuck can't you just get this right? Thank God I'm not that that, that yeah. dude. But it's just how, I think I'm rambling now, but it's like how you communicate and things like that. Yeah, no, I think that's important. Um, how do you see Hollywood changing um, in the wake of you know everything that's happening with Me Too? And how is that spilling into the conversation around race in Hollywood? I mean, I think they're totally separate. 
I think as far the Me Too thing is its own thing, and I'm not educated enough on it to speak on it. Um, I think that it's obviously important to have parity. I think it's really important to have equal pay. Um, and there are much more, there are many more people who have, uh, who are smarter than me, who can mm -hmm. talk about that in a more nuanced way than I ever could. That's cool. But in terms of race in Hollywood, it's still a black and white town. And I think it's okay that it's a black and white town because it used to just be a white town. And, but there's still the trans community, the, you know, the gay community, the Asian community, South Asian community, Latinos, like, I don't know when we'll be a part of the conversation, but, and maybe we're getting there. I mean, you brought up Kumail and, you know, I brought up Aziz and Riz and Mindy you know, we're talking about four people out of how many people are at the Oscars. So it's, um, it's slow going. And I don't know when we're going to be seen as part of the conversation. We all obviously in this country, like we're not an equal part. We can't be the, and I don't want to compare mm -hmm. because that's silly. It's not who has it worse or who has it better, or that's the problem is like each of our little groups and factions, we go, well, we have it hard this way. And this is what's tough for us. And it's like, then you just compare. And then you're just a dick. Mm -hmm. Like, that's not the point. The point mm -hmm. is to just be like- If you just silo yourself into your particular camp and, and kind of, you know, descend into the part of identity politics that doesn't work. Well, that, I mean, yeah, that's the thing. That's where we are right now is there's so many subcategories and each subcategory has its own set of rules and um, it's things that are off limits and things that are insulting. And it's very tough. Makes it tough to communicate. Very hard. Mm -hmm. It's really difficult. So how can, so all I can do is reach out to young South Asians if they want some advice or need mentoring, I'm here, I'm available. Anyone can tell you, like, if you reach out to me and I think you're about your shit, I will respond. Like, I'm open. I'm, I've worked with and mentored several people. I put out my own work and I try and just be a good example for who I can be. And that's all I can control. And yeah, I wish that we were like, there was more, but then like, I'm also totally cool where I'm at. It's it's just a balance. Yeah, but you get to be part of that solution and that conversation. Yeah, it'd be so cool. cool if somebody, like, it'll be cool when I'm Ajay Naidu to someone. Mm -hmm. Like when Ajay's my OG and I'll be somebody else's OG and I'll tell, and he gets to be grandpa OG and it'll be fun. I think you already are, man. Yeah, I'm, somebody. <laughs> I'm somebody's grandpa. <laughs> I think that's a good place to uh, to end it, man. Thanks, if people, man. if 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 somebody is if is that person, what's the best place for them to to get in touch with you? Is it like Twitter or Instagram? Twitter or Instagram at utk the inc utk t h e i n c on Twitter and Instagram. Right. I feel like you could just go by one name, just be Utkarsh. I've thought about it, like Usher. Yeah. You could totally pull that off. I wonder. Especially since your last name's too hard to say <laughs> all that shit anyway. <laughs> I might just change it. At this point, it's like, might as well. Mm -hmm. 
How do you feel? You feel good? I feel good. I'm like, now it's like, I don't know, man. I don't know if I can do it. Anything else you want to talk about? No, I think we hit all the bases. I think we did good. Yeah. I think we did good. Thanks, man. Uh, I love you, brother. Love you too. Thank you for coming here and sharing. Uh, It's powerful stuff. And um, I'm excited for you, dude. Like I see your future just unfolding in front of you and it's inspiring. And it's a tribute. It really is like, it's just like concrete, physical, real world, validation, manifestation of like what happens when you live a sober life, when you like live the principles, when you give back, when you're in service, all of that stuff. It's like this magnet, you know, where your life just gets bigger, you know, and I'm seeing that happen with you right now. And I I couldn't be more psyched for you. Thanks, man. So cool, man. So come back and talk to me again sometime. Oh, for sure. Definitely. Peace out, brother. Bye. And I would walk 500 miles And I would walk 500 more What a beautiful man. What a beautiful story. And what a beautiful rendition of 500 Miles. Lovely, right? Hope you guys enjoyed that. Uh, Make a point of sharing your thoughts with Utkarsh. He is at U-T-K. The INC, U-T-K-T-H-E-I-N-C on both Twitter and Instagram. Utkarsh is a bit more than 500 miles from home right now, working on the biggest movie of his life in New Zealand, which I imagine might be a little intimidating. So I'm sure he'd love to hear a few words of love and support from all of you guys. So please reach out to him. Also, make sure to check out the show notes on the episode page at richroll.com. Uh, We put a lot of work into them. They're almost a syllabus to extend your learning, your experience of the guest, your edification and entertainment beyond the conversation, beyond the earbuds, and they're awesome. So you can always find the show notes on the episode page for each respective episode at richroll.com. Once again, if you're looking for a little more nutritional direction, make a point of checking out our meal planner at meals.richroll.com thousands of plant-based recipes customized to your needs. We have incredible customer service. We have unlimited grocery lists. We have grocery delivery in most US cities with international delivery in certain cities coming soon, all for just $1.90 a week when you sign up for a year. Meals.richroll.com or click on the meal planner on the top menu at richroll.com. If you would like to support my work and this podcast, share it with a friend and on social media, hit that subscribe button on Apple Podcasts or on whatever platform you enjoy this. Uh, Also subscribe to my YouTube channel. This episode is indeed up on YouTube as well. All of this helps with the show's visibility and just extending reach and all that good stuff so I can bring the best guests to you every single week. We also have a Patreon for those who want to support us financially. You can find that at ritual.com forward slash donate. I want to thank the people who helped put on the show today. Jason Camiolo for audio engineering, production, show notes, interstitial music. Blake Curtis and Margot Lubin for video editing and graphics. The music by Analemma. Thanks for the love, you guys. See you back here in a couple of few. Until then, may you be true in the creative expression of your life. Yeah.